The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. And we're live, back from the motherfucking jungle. Justin Rand, saving pygmies, hanging out, having a good time. What's up, brother? How are you? Man, I'm excited to be here. Excited, excited to have you. Hey, thanks. Um, I've been paying attention to your crazy travels and your journeys, and uh, you brought some pictures and, and videos for us today, too. And how long have you been back for? I've been back since uh, late October. And you were, you, were here for, you were here for a little while, and the last time you were supposed to be here, you were real sick. And I got to be honest with you, we weren't too excited about a dude fresh back from Africa <laughs> coming in with some yeah. sort of funky jungle virus. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I didn't come in. What did you have? Did you have anything crazy? Well, I had bronchitis, and then, um, but before that, I had Shigella, which is an oh, intestinal bacteria. I don't like which, that. Uh, How do you get that? Fun. Uh, it's a waterborne disease. Waterborne. So you drink the water out there. Yeah. I, there was just times that I couldn't help it, but uh, yeah, or it could be from food or a fly landing on your food while it's being cooked, or uh, there's many different ways that you can get it. Whoa. So you either leave, live your life like the boy in the plastic bubble. Remember yeah. that John Travolta movie? Yeah, I think that's the only way you can't get sick. Yeah. How many times have you gotten sick over there? Uh, all throughout. All throughout. <laughs> You're always sick. Yeah. Yeah, I had this guy um, on the sci-fi show that I did who told me that everyone who lives in South American or um, uh, jungle climates, mm. everyone has parasites. Oh, yeah. They just live with them. Yeah, I had them too. Uh, I, got, I had amoebas. I had some kind of parasite in my stomach also. Um, I'm actually still a bruise from here because I got seven uh, vials of blood drawn to see what kind of parasites are still in me. Still uh, recently? Yeah, yeah, that's just a few days old. Oh. So, yeah, so it's it's been a battle since coming back, um, but I, I think I'm getting I'm on the track to get my health back together. So. What's a crazy uh, place to... To, to live to spend your time yeah. man. it's a uh, it's a very strange thing this uh the environment where you have like all these crazy tropical diseases is it oh, like, yeah. the heat and the moisture and yeah. all the above and mm -hmm. yeah i think it's just the entire environment it's uh it's just brutal because i right when i got there i got malaria and so that was pretty bad um uh, so the mosquitoes the bugs the parasites everything can can mess with you um yeah so the the, the water the climate the, the bad living conditions. So, I mean, not having a, a, a nice bed and not yeah. having a good home to sleep in, um, all those can contribute to, to sickness. Malaria is no joke, huh? What no. was that like? Oh, man, that was brutal. That was uh, one of the toughest times of my life, but um, I, I counted it as, I don't know, it was actually a good experience for me in the end because I got to, to share in the suffering that they're going through because mm -hmm. they don't even have all the antibiotics and all the medicine to pump your body with to, to get healed from it so i had to be evac'd out of the congo and into uganda Whoa. i was misdiagnosed four times so they drew my blood they did two quick tests for malaria and they said it was negative then they drew my blood said it was negative but uh i got real sick real sick like six days i couldn't eat six days i couldn't urinate um i think i lost 34 pounds um and then whenever i finally did urinate in uganda is after I got the right medicine, they saw, they took my blood out, saw that I had over 70, 70% 70 uh, of my bloodstream was parasites. What? Yeah, 70% of my, my blood was, was full of parasites. They would, they would hide in the liver, and then they would distribute through your blood. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. Like, you're invaded. Yeah, absolutely. 70% of your blood was parasites. Mm -hmm. 
that am I getting that wrong? Or seventy percent was infected with parasites? So they said seventy percent of my bloodstream. So they said between sixty and seventy percent. So I was on the third tier. Like there's level one, two, and three, and four, mm-hmm. and four. I was right at right at four, which was a coma. So um, when you get to four, you there's, you're in a coma and you. It's it's pretty bad. A lot of people die. Well, lucky you're a so. strapping, healthy, <laughs> young buck of a man that you got through that, huh? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. It was it was really good. Like, um, I mean, the pilot that flew me out. It was actually on Thanksgiving of 2013, and he flew me out. Uh, just me and him on the plane, and he found out that they're misdiagnosing me. That that my my buddy there was like, I, the doctors don't know what's going on with him. He's gonna die if we don't get him out of here to a good hospital. So they took me out of the jungle, flew me to Uganda. And when I landed, an ambulance came and picked me up because my vomit had turned to blood and bile. So it was literally, I could smell, you know, like in the fight game, you can smell the blood. Right. So uh, I could smell the iron, I think, in mm-hmm. my blood. And it was really, it was literally Christmas colors, red and green. And it was brutal. For two weeks after, my esophagus was raw. And so I could barely, barely eat much. I mean, I'd really have to chew it down a lot or I'd have to just drink a lot. Um, and so... Yeah, replenishing my body after that was a whole, I mean, I think it's still happening, but uh, it was at least a month-long process to, to start putting weight back on. You think it's still happening from over a year ago? Your body's still replenishing? Well, from that and from some of the parasites and everything else. So, yeah, but the malaria, I guess I, there's mixed reviews, but a lot of times they say that the malaria never li- literally leaves your body 100%. So it's, it's, it's dormant in your liver, and then it can come back up whenever stress and other things happen so um wow so we're getting that tested that's one of the things they're testing for me so it can come back up like say if you get run down like maybe if you get the flu or something like that malaria might go come here bitch i'm back motherfucker yeah and that would that would be brutal because my my fever got to like almost 105 it was like 104 104.5 or what's fatal it's like one six or one seven or something like that like 110 yeah they they were saying it was getting high enough to where like they really had to watch me because of uh because it can do stuff to your brain. Yeah, if you're hot, your brain gets too hot, right? Yeah. Parasites are terrifying, man. You ever, don't ever watch that show. You ever seen that show, The Enemy Within? What's it called? No. The Enemy Within You or Enemy Inside You? It's all about people who do what you do. Go go to some place and get some crazy parasite, and then they have like some softball-sized ball of worms living in your brain. You know, and they're like, oh, I have headaches. I started seeing Jesus, and there's <laughs> angels floating around me. I couldn't figure out what it was, and then I went to the doctor, and they found this mass inside my brain, and... Ugh. Yeah, I, I probably won't watch that. <laughs> don't. Well, yeah. you you live it. I mean, you don't have to watch it. You yeah. you live it. We got plenty of coconut water for you, my friend. If you want some, we got C two O. You ever have that shit? No. C two O is the bomb diggity. Get the man a can of C two O. All right, thank it's, you. It's uh, from Thailand. They're, they're really yeah. Their coconut water is like it's really sweet. It's weird. It's a short tree. It's only like five feet tall, and uh, you know you think of like the big tall yeah. like palm trees mm-hmm. as being coconut trees, but the Thai trees are short and. Uh, it's like a much sweeter. Dude, you. you drink it, you would swear that they have some sort of sugar in it, but it's not. It's totally natural. Dude, thank you. It's delicious stuff. Um, but uh, the, those parasites, the thing about parasites is that it's really hard to root them out of your system. And some of them, like trichinosis, I've, I've found out recently. My friend got trichinosis, and uh, they said he's got it essentially for life. Like, they give him pills. It flushed, like, the active parasites out of his system but like say trichinosis comes from an animal eating an animal with trichinosis so if somebody cannibalized him they would get trichinosis wow 
Yeah. <laughs> to this day, and he's walking around like a normal person, but he's got trichinosis in his system essentially forever. So that's like kind of how malaria is? Well, yeah, I, I guess so. That's, Something like that's that? What, that's what we're looking at. So if at. I ate you, I'd get malaria? I hope not. Hmm. <laughs> if you I'll ate my never, liver. I think you ate my liver. Eat you, dude. I'll never <laughs> eat, I'll tell you right now. I'm pretty confident. Unless yeah. we're in some Donner Party type situation and you die first. <laughs> yeah. Man, it's, it's, it's nuts. The the suffering that they're going through though with malaria because they don't have mosquito nets and all other stuff so i was kind of uh not cautious enough and one thing i didn't want to do was take take a, a, a malaria pill that would prevent malaria um what's that called a prophylaxis or something mm-hmm. like that something like that um and so uh, i didn't want to take that because a, a doctor here stateside said that if i took some of them they're really intense um they can really hurt your body they also said that uh even mentally um taking them for a full year they could give you night terrors and terrible dreams, but then also like people have uh, moments of psychosis from yes. taking them and stuff. So I was like, well, I don't want to be dealing with that. And if the guys in Congo said, oh, yeah, once you get malaria once, um, normally it doesn't come back very bad. And so all we have to do is all we have very to do bad. is, yeah, the next time, the next time is much lower and much lower and much lower. And it's much more, uh, I don't know, you can tr- control it easier. And so the thing that was the struggle with me was that they misdiagnosed it four different times. Wow. And we took it to two different labs, um, and they just didn't have the, I guess, the right tools and technology to really see that. Because whenever I got there, we're, we're flying, and I'm hugging a bucket. And they put me, whenever they were putting me into the ambulance, I remember my vision was tunneling. Ooh. Um, and, and all in front of me was completely, uh, I mean, it was just blur. It was just a blur. And then... Um, and when you say tunneling, like, could you actually see, like, the walls closing in? Well, not at first. It was like I, I woke up one day, and it was like all of a sudden my peripheral vision was kind of blurry. And that messed with me. I was like, what's going on? Mm. Then all of a sudden it started getting darker. And so it didn't, like, start closing, like, if you're getting choked or something. It's right. Like, yeah. It didn't do that. But it, it kind of stopped, and I think it just prevented my peripheral vision from, from really functioning or working. Um, and then the thing that sucks is, is you get these crazy um, back and forth between shivering um, uncontrollably, uncontrollably in your teeth chattering to then you all of a sudden just uh, like on a dime it switches and all of a sudden you're incredibly hot sweating and you're throwing everything off and you're grabbing a fan and it just goes back and forth Whoa. And it goes back and forth for maybe 30 minutes or something you're, you're terribly cold then for 30 minutes you're terribly hot and incredibly thirsty but then you drink something you vomit it up um, and so they were trying to force me to eat because they're like, you don't have malaria, you got to eat. And everything <sighs> I would eat, I'd just vomit. So you it was, don't have malaria, you got to eat. Wow. Yeah. I had, a, I, had a, I had one doctor there that uh, they, they couldn't agree with each other was, because they didn't know what was going on with me. So the up-and-coming doctor and one of the young nurses said, this guy's got malaria 100%. But the older ones were just going off of the results. And they're like, no, look, you want to see the first test, second test, third test, or fourth test that says he doesn't have malaria? And so there was some uh, humanitarian organization there, and they had gotten this crazy, I don't know, virus or flu kind of thing. And uh, they would be sick for three or four days, and then they'd get better. But it went through all of them. And so they thought that I had gotten that. So they said, just let him ride it out, and he'll get better. Oh. Um, and then kind of the, the head kind of doctor that was overseeing it came, and I was in my room, but she wouldn't even enter into the room because um, she was looking at me through the through the uh, screen door saying, I'm not coming in there. I'm not risking me getting sick with that. Whoa. But malaria you can't pass on like that. It's got to be from a mosquito. Do you know that malaria has killed half of all the people that have ever died? <laughs> I had no clue. Yeah. No. 
It's the nuttiest statistic I've ever heard in my life. I had to re-research it and look it up and find corroborating sources. Yeah, it's killed half of all the people that have ever died ever have wow. died from malaria. I think there's a guy named, that's nuts. That's, that's fucking nuts. That's crazy. But listening to your story, it's not surprising. No, not at all. Um, yeah, it's brutal. I think even if you go back and look at Congolese history, um, James Jameson, I think is his name, uh, but he's one of the Jameson guys that founded the, the whiskey in Ireland. He went, and this is the story, I think it's been conflicting, but it's been confirmed by some, some sources there that were with him traveling. And he went to some of the cannibalistic like villages there in Congo back in the day in the 1800s. And um, he would actually, that's uh, crazy, but he would buy some of the young uh, kids and he would feed them to the cannibals and he would he would do like art and stuff like that. Um, what, who, what? Yeah. Well, that's Wait what they said about the Jameson guy, uh, with the whiskey. He would buy young kids mm -hmm. from who? From like slave villages and stuff like that. That's, that's a big past in, in Congo is that uh, tribes have enslaved other tribes and things like that. Yeah. And so they would buy... You can buy people there. That's that's what happened whenever we brought a pygmy over to to the United States, put him in the New York Zoo. Um, he lived in the the monkey house for a couple of years. Yeah. And uh, but you can that was just the Bronx go buy Zoo, people. right? Yeah, the Bronx Zoo. Yeah. And then also the uh, St. Louis World Fair, and he toured around with them for a little bit. <sighs> got depressed, got a gun, and and uh, shot himself. So Jesus got off a security Christ. guard, I think. But um, but with the Jameson guy, he 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 died in in Congo or Uganda from from malaria. Whoa. And that's the, is it been confirmed that he actually did that? That he actually bought people think, and fed little kids to these cannibals? Well, it, it looks like it because I think it was Stanley. I forget Stanley's first name. But I think he was the one that confirmed it. Like they had a, they would go and, and they would have to have protection. So they would get some of the, the warrior tribes there to protect themselves. And then they would, uh, yeah, in his downtime, that's, that's, he was an artist or something who would paint pictures and, Stuff like that. So we put pictures I, of suffering, and then the, oh God. I'm pretty sure it happened at least once. I, I mean, maybe that's something that the listeners can go oh. go look up or Google. But I'm pretty sure it's uh, it's confirmed. So are they relate? I mean, did the art was it related to the the children being eaten? Like, did yeah. they draw art about that? Yeah, I think I think there's one confirmed story. So I don't know that he did it a ton, but I know <laughs> that he, he did it once, which is is, is is awful, terrible. You know, it's crazy. Wow. You know, that's the weirdest thing about people is how, how much they vary and how adaptable people are. You know, the people, when they're involved, when they're in, in an environment where horrible things are going on, they do horrible things. Like yeah. people who have gone to war and have talked about horrific things that they've witnessed and how it became normal and they mm -hmm. be, it became a part of them. And they, they g contributed and they became a part of, like, these horrific war crimes. Like, like riots perfect example when people riot you, you you take a person who would never throw a Molotov cocktail or break a window or or stomp a cop to death or whatever but you get them involved in a group of 10,000 people that are doing the same thing and it's almost like it's in the air it's like yeah it's like people get infected by whatever's around them they sort of imitate their atmosphere yeah in Congo and uh, in, in, in Uganda I saw it once but they have something called mob justice and so that's a crazy thing kind of like with riots where if something happens, someone just has to accuse somebody, and then everyone comes. And, and in some cases, it's okay, because if a thief is there and, and they yell thief, then the whole community surrounds the thief. But the, the, the danger happens whenever someone wants to take justice into their own hands. And instead of turning that thief over to the authorities, what they do is they beat him and kill him. So me and my buddy Benjamin, he was my translator, 
we were walking down a center street of uh, like basically Main Street in one of these these big towns. It's called Bunia, and in Bunia they have a big uh, past for lots of different struggles and even like I think uh, smaller kind of genocides. Well, I say smaller, but I think 50,000 people were killed there just in that one town. 50,000 people killed by different rebel groups, machetes, all this different stuff. Um, but we were walking down the street, and someone yelled thief, and nobody even confirmed it. They grabbed the guy, started beating him, and then whenever we got up there, Ben's grabbed me and said, you don't want to be around this because I'm, I'm the only outsider there. And so, but at first, my instinct was like, in, instinct, I didn't know that they were saying thief, thief. My instinct was like, there's 30 guys pounding on this guy. Like, someone's got to, you know, give this guy some rooms, give him some space. He was grabbing my shirt, pulling me. And, uh, and so, anyways, whenever we went back and saw him, his body was just twisted up, and he was bent up in, a, in basically a ditch. Um, and then, yeah. They just beat him to death. Yeah. There's a lot of that for witchcraft, too, right? They, they accuse people of being yeah. witches and burn them alive. Mm-hmm. And, they'll, and that's a big problem with the orphans in, in uh, Congo, is that if they get accused of witchcraft, they just excommunicate them from their family. Jesus so, Christ. Yeah. Well, education, man, right? It's like these people have these ancient ideas that are based on just one person who's ignorant telling another person who's ignorant and becomes doctrine, and they just pass it down through generation to generation, and they really believe in witchcraft. Yeah. Apparently, they have a real issue with albinos, too. Oh, yeah. yeah they think that albinos, like, that they're cursed or something like that? or Yeah, cursed, and then if you can kill, cook, and eat an albino guy. Uh, this is in Tanzania. That I know that I can confirm this that um, they'll, if they can consume the flesh of an albino, then it can cure them of HIV, oh. um, tuberculosis. Uh, I don't know some other sicknesses too. Fuck, that's yeah, crazy. And that's that's with the pygmies. While we we're there celebrating on our our first water well that we accomplished there, um, some of the government officials came and said that this is the first ever. Uh, clean water source among the pygmy people, the Mabuti um, pygmies in, in eastern Congo. Because the pygmies are in many different countries, but in there, that country, this is the first water source for them. And so, but on that day, uh, a rebel leader named uh, Morgan of the Mai Mai, it's a terrible rebel group there, um, they had been confirmed in 2012 uh, of, of killing, cooking, and eating pygmies, thinking that it makes them invincible going into battle. Oh. But while we were there celebrating, all of a sudden, all the Congolese army uh, is driving by us. And basically, the Congolese army is just a bunch of rebel groups like that, that, that defected and, and came together to be the Congolese army. And so, but they're all driving by, you know, where we are celebrating. And, uh, and I guess what, what turns out, these guys have RPGs and machine guns and all sorts of crazy stuff. And I guess I had uh, Morgan, the, the main leader in the back, and uh, they had killed him, but he had came to peacefully turn himself in. But anyways, they, they killed him. And so that, that took the, um, the Mai Mai. They didn't want to, the rest of the rebels, now they don't want to turn themselves in. Because if they turn themselves in peacefully, then they might be, be killed or executed, you know. So they went back and started killing more, raping more, uh, attacking more gold mines, stuff like that. And then um, some of the people there from the U.N., that were studying the conflict and stuff, said, be careful in that area where you're going, don't go, um, for a little bit. So we stayed for maybe three weeks, and then we went back out. But uh, they were saying that the Mai Mai were walking around drinking from all the, the pygmy skulls, just drinking out of their, oh. their skulls. So it's it's pretty nuts, man. Fuck. Yeah. Jesus, man. You've seen some crazy shit in the few years that you've been down there. I mean, what a 
wild transformation your life has taken from <laughs> going from the ultimate fighter, fighting in the UFC, experiencing the the trip, the initial trip when you went and you met those people and you became incredibly committed to helping them. Like you just felt like you were overcome with this almost like a calling, right? Is that the yeah. best way to describe yeah, it? Yeah, I'd say so. And then you've been there back and forth ever since. Yeah, the the first time I would say it wasn't until my flight back that I felt that initial like I got to do something because whenever I was there the problem just seemed so huge and so I mean so insurmountable that what am I going to do? Right. How how am I going to help? Right. Um and 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 am I going to get endanger myself or get sick or die or whatever in the process. Um and but on the way back I just felt like, you know, if 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 not me, then then who, you know, like they asked me if I would give them a voice, if I could help them, if I could. Um, and I, I just felt, a, I don't know, a yearning, a longing that, that I had to do something. And uh, so the the second trip back um, was was great. I got to actually meet some people that really had some real plans because the first time I went with people that we didn't have plans to actually help or anything um, like sustainability it was just kind of a learning trip going and seeing what what their problems were. Second time it was the university there, uh, their school of community development, and they had dreams of of giving them water, giving them land, giving them food, but they didn't have any way to do it really. They had the plan and everything in place, but they didn't have funding behind it. They didn't have the technology behind it. Um, and so, the third time was whenever I came back and I I had uh, studied how to build those eco domes, and I partnered with an organization. It's a great organization called Water Four, and they. Um, their big thing is what, what I was searching for was how to put the, the tools or the, basically the power in the hands of the people there. Instead of having to have outside help, how could we actually help them to continue to do it, continue the process? And so Water 4 puts the tools in the people's hands and then they teach them how to do it. And then now they can do it for themselves. It can be a sustainable business for them. They can, they can use whatever model they want. If it's a nonprofit model, if it's a business model, um, to to make it sustainable there, so that way, yeah, where I'm at, Congolese can help Congolese, and that way, um, I can hopefully you know fan the flame, uh, go over there, teach them more, bring over the right people. Water Four really supported and sent over, um, you know, their director of implementation to come, really sit down with us for two weeks, teach us. He came back out, did it again. Now he's gone over since I've been back already. He's been back over teaching our team even more, you know, strategies of how to dig these water wells. Now, we had uh, a bunch of people donate to your cause, which is, it's Fight for the Forgotten. Um, we had a bunch of people donate Bitcoin, and yeah. I, ma I matched the Bitcoin. Whatever people donated, I, I matched it. But it was, Bitcoin's kind of weird. Like, it's fluctuating up and back, and although I'm a big believer and supporter, and I think it'd probably be better if people donate cash so we know exactly what the fuck we're dealing with, what's the best way they can donate to, to your cause? Well, they could go to fightfortheforgotten.com. And they could just click donate and do it there. We're going to be updating the site real soon, but um, but yeah, that's straight to the the nonprofit five hundred one c three like bank account. Um, they could go to Water Four if they want to fund the, the water out. projects there. F O R, Water Four, F O R, or F O U R with a, with a number, four. the number four. So yeah. water and the number water four. Water Four org. Okay, so they could go to fightfortheforgotten.com, donate, or they could go to Water Four. Water then the number four, yep. not F O U R, but the number. Right, okay. the number. There you go. And since coming on the podcast and, and, and people becoming aware of what you're doing, are you getting other organizations that are reaching out to you to try to help you and contribute as well? Yeah, that's, that's been a cool thing, but it's trying to be selective in the process because um, 
I mean, funding is something that, yeah, we definitely need. But at the same time, we want to do it in a way that's going to be practical for the people there. So sometimes uh, you have to, it, it sucks, but sometimes you got to say no to good opportunities or, or, or chunks of money um, if they're going to tell you how to use it, when to use it, and, and, and kind of control. If they give it to you with, with strings attached, instead of saying like, well, culturally, it might not work here, that doing it that way, you know, instead of going and just, uh, I don't know if that, does that make sense? Well, sort of, like what experience okay. have you had? Like what, have you had people well, that just had the wrong idea of what the environment is like there or what the yeah. culture is like? Yeah, I don't, I don't want to knock um, any organization so, but, but things have to be sustainable to really continue change. Um, my mind frame is that opportunity is much better than charity. If you give people an opportunity to get out of their poverty, um, then that, that, that empowers them. Like teach a man to yeah, fish. Yeah, absolutely. And you feed him for right. life, te- you know, give him a fish, you yeah. feed him for a day. And so there's been things where people are like, hey, I'm donating, um, you know, I had to turn someone away that was going to donate 5,000 um, of the water straws. And that might sound really bad. I didn't turn them away. I said, hey, how about you help us fund a water well like you guys did? And I, I got some pictures to show. It's awesome of the, the village you guys supported. But, cool. uh, but really, um, the, the water straw thing is, is great. What's a water straw? Well, uh, I don't want to knock them, but, but it's, uh, I think it's a great organization. Um, and, and I didn't turn the organization down. I turned a, a private person that wanted to say, hey, I'm doing this, and you, you run with it. And I said, thank you, but I think a water well will, will support them better than because I've had one of those, it's called a life straw. And I think the way it's marketed is that it's going to save the third world. Um, but then if you think about it, uh, how many times does someone in the third world, every single time they want to get a clean drink of water, do they want to have a straw wrapped around their neck and then put their face in the water? Well, I'm, and then I'm not suck sure on. what exactly is it. Is it like it's a, a filter? It's a filter, system? yeah. Yeah, it's a life straw. And I think it's great. I think it's great for survival, um, you know, if, if you're out camping. Um, I also think that. What does it look like? Can you pull, pull it up, James? Yeah. Well, is, is, you say it wraps around your neck. Yeah, you, you, it wraps around your neck. And you walk around with it. So, um, and then if, if whenever you need clean water, you just you you put your face in the in the ground in the dirt, um, and then you suck clean water out of it. But if uh, that what he was going to support was going to be worth like two or three different water wells, and it's a really cool idea. It's a great a great thing. I really, I really don't want to knock him. I think it's awesome. Is this see, what we're looking at here? Yeah. So he has this whole contraption. So I'm see not, how you have um, to put your face in the ground right there on life straw. Oh, it's called a life straw. Okay. Yeah. So see, see now, now that's a great marketing. I, I, I agree with that. You know, you have so camping he, doing something like that, and you need a clean drink of water. You don't have it. Right. Put your face in the ground and get it. So he can just drink through that straw. Mm-hmm. That's it. And it's clean water. What about but, like? But you have to suck pretty hard. I mean, you really do have to to pull pull on it real hard to get the, get hmm. the water and maybe maybe after you use it a while it gets easier i'm sure it does that's how most of those filters are but really? at fir- yeah but at first you're having to really you know you're turning red in the face and stuff like that sort of like inflating a really thick balloon or something like that but the opposite yeah, yeah and I, I think it's great I, I i really do but at the same time to to take it in and say to my my i i really think of the pygmies as my family mm-hmm. i'm not going to go in there and, and just drop those off i'd rather give them a water well that they can go to time and time again. They yeah. can fill up as much as they want. They can drink it from a, a glass instead of right. their face in the ground. No, well, that definitely totally makes sense. It maybe be good to have both. Yeah, you know? it, it, yeah, it could be. It could yeah. be. At I mean, the time, doesn't... though, it was like even getting it over to Congo. Some people are really gung-ho, and I love it. They're like, please, you know, help us, support us, things like that. But then um, if you're going to donate and say this is what it's for, and then, and then we have to find a way to get it there, 
ship it, you know, 5,000 of these straws or something like that. Uh -huh. Um, it's, it's a, it's a lot of work. So you turned them down because you didn't have the ability to ship them there or just to, to, to ship them. And then, and then I was trying to just say, Hey, this is the real solution that we see right now is, uh -huh. is that, that could be in the future. And, and right now I'm in the jungle. It's hard for me to come out. Getting things in through customs is crazy. Also seeing 5,000 of those boxed up the Congolese, uh, government there in the, the border patrol. They're absolutely crazy, man. Um, there was uh, $3,000 worth of, of mattresses donated to this hospital, and these people sent it on a truck and paid for the shipping and everything. Then whenever they got there, the government wanted $5,000 so that they could bring it into the country. And they're like, what do you mean? And so the, the hospital now has $3,000 of donated mattresses for their, yeah, for their beds, but, but now they have no way to get it in there because they don't have the funds to pay $5,000 to the corrupt government officials just to get their beds released across the border, all that other stuff. <sighs> That's got to be insanely frustrating for you, trying to make a change and running time and time again into all this corruption and all these devious people. And this, it sounds like, I mean, if you go back to the Jameson thing, it's like this long history of horrible things that have been happening in this area. Mm -hmm. And there's a kind of like a momentum attached to that. It's almost like this is just the way it is. This is a fucked up part of the world. Is that accurate? Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's it's nuts. Um, every single time I've gone across the border, there's been some kind of problem where they want to arrest me. They want to um, in my team. They want to find someone that they can single out, find something that they can get a bribe for, um, and 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 they just waste so much of your time. For instance, we we got a, a truck donated to us, which was awesome, so that we could get our our our, our PVC, our tools, all that out to the forest. And whenever we brought it into the country, we had all the paperwork saying it's under the university. It's uh, tax-free, basically. And um, this is a university vehicle that's going to be used for humanitarian aid. Um, but then whenever we get to the, the border, the head guys, the, the absolute head guys of customs were saying, yeah, but how's that going to feed my family? And it's like, well, isn't your job a government job? And they, they pay you. It's not my job to pay you. So they locked up our truck for three and a half weeks. Oh. So we were delayed almost a month. And our process and everything we had laid out strategies we're going to be in this village from this day to this day this week to this week this month so they were month. just waiting for a bribe yeah absolutely so after yeah. three and a half weeks how did you resolve it yeah they came back to us with with a, a long list of uh of new fees of processing fees and we had to go do this to get it and go do this to get it and go do this to get it um and by that time um we just decided that I think we ended up paying like seven hundred and fifty dollars to to get our truck released, but it was going to be it was going to be five hundred dollars anyways. So I think they got an extra two hundred and fifty dollars. But fuck! But, but you lost three. Yeah, but they were first asking for for seven or eight thousand dollars. They're looking they're looking for for fifty percent of the purchase price of the vehicle. Oh, yeah. god damn, man! Yes, yeah. does it? It's got to drive you nuts when you're dealing with something that's. You, you know, you're trying to help. You're you're going yeah. over there. You're essentially dedicating your life, a huge part of your life, to going over there and helping these people, being you know completely humanitarian in your your your, your actions, and then you run into this kind of shit. It's got to be really really frustrating. Yeah, I mean, it, it it absolutely is. It's it's different than anything that we experience here because that corruption isn't. Uh, I mean, sure, there's corrupt stuff that goes on here, but it's not so open, so public. Um, I mean, by the time we finally paid. That $750, I remember grabbing my wallet, 
and uh, and because he was he was wanting more. And I grabbed my wallet and I had like Congolese francs in my my wallet and I just shook it on his desk. And he had he had other people witnessing this and other people outside that could see in. And I'm like, here, this is all I have. This is all I have. You've delayed us one month from giving your people, um, your countrymen, water. Like, and they're dying from it. And I think right before that, um, a little guy named Babo had died, and uh, I had been holding him in my hands. And so, um, I mean, I've I've buried you know now a couple of kids, but I've seen I've been to over ten funerals. Um, and so, uh, I've I've yeah I was holding Babo, and you know I didn't know I didn't know they they. I just got in the hut, and um, and whenever I crawled in, uh, you know, his 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 mother is my mother's sister. So basically, she was my aunt, and Baba was my cousin. So Chabusiku is my mother. Macho is her sister, and Baba was Macho's son. And when you say my mother, like your adopted mother? Yeah, my adopted mother there. And um, so they just gave you a whole family there. Yeah, I love them, man. Wow, I love them. My, my name in that village is Efeosa which F.A.O.S. means the man who loves us. And then my new name that, that everyone's been calling me, especially when I drive up and down the roads there, um, is Mabuti Mangbo. And uh, Mabuti Mangbo means the big pygmy. <laughs> wow. And so they just call me the big pygmy. And, uh, the big pygmy and the man who loves us. Yeah. Wow. And so the, the thing that was tough with, Babu had just passed away before we got the truck, I think. And, um, and, 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 or, and I actually think Babu happened after. A girl named Little Mo happened before, and um, and so it's just just tough stuff because I'm seeing this. It's 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 really wrecking me, you know, seeing kids kids go through this, um, or anybody really, and knowing that we have the tools, we have the solution to that problem. And what was that problem? What were they dying from? Water. Water. Yeah, just dirty water. The parasites. They get tapeworms. Um, there's other there's other kinds of sicknesses that uh, attribute to it. But most of them, the little kids, they run around with these huge bellies, and it's just full of tapeworms, um, <sighs> other kinds of, of bacterias and, and things like that. And if you can just give them clean water, um, I think the stat from the United Nations Human Development Report is 85% of sickness just disappears once you have clean water in your system. But, but once you're, you're constantly getting sick from that, not only that, but it's diarrhea. Whenever you have waterborne illness and drinking dirty water, now these people that don't have a lot of food um, that are either slaves to get their food, which a whole family can work, you know, a mother, father, and, and their two or three children can go work for their masters, and they get uh, two small bananas at the end of the day. And they have to split that within their whole family. But now if you have diarrhea added on top of that, now you don't absorb any of the nutrients from that banana you just ate. It just goes straight through you. Um, and so it's it's real tough to be like, man, first we got them land while we were there, which was was a huge thing. We negotiated and and petitioned and lobbied for for them and their rights with with the government there, but also the the local slave masters, the the chiefs of that area, um, and said, you know, these are the first citizens of Congo. Why don't they have any land? Why has all their land been stolen from them? Why is the land that they're on now all of a sudden legally in the name of somebody else? And so, where's some land that we could get and purchase on behalf of them? And uh, the university did a great job in that. Um, I was kind of in the background for that for sure because. Um, just being a, a, an NGO, a nonprofit, something like that, uh, the local government officials, again, will see dollar signs. And so if we were going to buy the land, um, it was going to be astronomical. We couldn't have done it. Uh, if the university would have done it, it would have been over $250,000. 
Um, but since we came up with an idea and a solution saying, well, who, who cares who gets the credit? Like, I don't need it and fight for the forgotten's name. Uh, like, it doesn't have to be in uh, the university's name. What if we just, what if we're just kind of the caretakers and we handle the documents and the negotiations and seeing that it's legally done and then all parties will get copies of it. They'll put their thumbprints all on the, the documents and uh, each chunk of land, they have like 10 or 12 thumbprints on it with signatures and there's a handwritten one, there's a typed out one and then the government comes out. Now we're doing GPS coordinates of the land but uh, the land we got was 2,470 acres. So we've been able to do that in 10 different spots. So it's one square kilometer in each, each different village that we've tried to now establish. And now we're putting water wells all on those and hoping to start farming projects on them all too. That's fantastic. Do you have any concern that with all this added publicity and all this attention that's in that area that the more people will come in and try to exploit that because they know the resources are in that area now? I think, I think what's been great for me is being able to kind of dive in as uh, part of the university and have their kind of their covering because now uh, they say I'm a teacher. I'm a pra of, of appropriate technologies. Um, and so I'm teaching Congolese how to, how to yeah, dig wells, farm, and uh, build new homes, Dif just different sustainable things. I'll come back here, learn it, and, and I'll come and I'll either teach it or I'll bring someone with me that really can, you know. Even if I, I don't know the everything about it, I'll get someone there that, that will. Um, and so the university there is um, is kind of just they're they're able to really negotiate and show everybody on both sides like, hey, this is in everyone's best interest, and which, which is which is something cool because whenever we go in and we drill water wells, we're not just drilling them for my pygmy family, we're drilling them for the people that oppressed them too, and that way we can show them that the project isn't just for the pygmies and just going to benefit them. If you can sell us their land, which sometimes the land prices that we're buying them for are three years, five years, 10 years salary for the people that, that either enslaved them or, or that own that land. Um, and then we come in and we say, we're also going to give you a water well. Well, their kids are dying of the same stuff too. And they've been struggling with diarrhea their whole life or, or parasites or whatever it is. Now we're going to give you guys both water wells. And when we start our farming project, we're bringing in uh, uh, agriculturalists to teach both sides better farming practices. Oh, that's so great. Kinda, yeah. That's a beautiful strategy. Right. And so that way it doesn't, it, it, nobody gets offended. It's like, hey, no, this isn't, this isn't a pygmy project. Because mm. if it's a pygmy project, then, then that's not going to be received well. But people get um, jealous and then they'll, yeah. yeah. And they're, they're used to oppressing them and why are they getting help? Um, right. And so we're, we want to help everybody out. Let's, let's come up together. Wow, that's beautiful, man. That's beautiful. And is there any resistance there? Because they, they've been so prejudiced against the pygmies for so long. Is, the, is there any resistance to the pygmies having equal treatment? Um, I, I'm sure that there, there is like questions and things like that, but we haven't seen. And, and, and what we do also is we go in there with, with the university, like dean of the, the um, Department of Development, and we sit down with them and we explain everything. And, and, and it all becomes like agreeable and written down on paper before we ever take action. And so that way we can always show them, hey, we all agreed to this, you know. And uh, so it's, it's been a great process for me. Do they all speak the same language, these people that you're communicating with, the pygmies yeah. and their oppressors? Mm -hmm. And what language? They kind of have that? their own dialects also, but most people have. The, Congo has so many languages, there's about 200. Wow. Yeah, 200 of their, of their local tribe languages do they share words in common or is it some of them do for sure especially ones that, that border each other but then there's always a common thread i think there's five national languages of congo and um one's french so that's like kind of the government language and the language spoken schools 
another Swahili, and that's on the eastern side. So that's what I've been trying to learn, and, and I can pick it up pretty good, but uh, speaking it, I'm still kind of far behind, so I always have a translator right beside me. But they have Lingala, and they have, uh, I think it's called Banakongo or something like that. So kind of in each region, the north, the south, the east, the west, all that, they have their own kind of language that, that everybody speaks. And then as a nation, everybody speaks French. Wow. Um, so you are, do you speak French at all? No. Just what, do, how, are you Sorry, using yeah. like a program or something like that or books? Yeah, or? trying Rosetta Stone, but really just immersing myself because it's, it's really hard. Even the French there is, is, I mean, I guess you could, French would be good for me to learn. It absolutely would. Um, to communicate with the government officials, for sure. Um, but everybody in the East speaks, speaks Swahili, and my pygmy family, they speak Swahili, but it's broken. And so even like Rosetta Stone, it's a hard thing to go on there and learn because that's the proper Tanzanian Swahili. And then Kenya kind of gets a little worse. Um, and then there's a break in between Uganda, where in Uganda it's basically just the military language of Swahili. And then you get over to Congo. And so there's a big break between that that pure, proper Tanzanian right. Swahili and the, the, the Swahili spoken in Congo because they mix in local language right. and they mix in French and all that other stuff. And accents, I'm sure, as well. Oh, yeah, right? definitely. So I, I just try to immerse myself in there and, and learn it that way. And I'm able to talk a little bit, but, but really just having a translator there is helping me. It's amazing how many variations there are in languages. Yeah. I, I went to Northern Ireland once for the UFC and uh, spoke to people in, uh, in Belfast. You can't understand a fucking word they're saying. I mean, they're speaking English, and you'll pick out like one out of every four or five words that you you're pretty sure that's what the word is. But they're yeah. speaking English. Isn't that nuts? Hi, this fucking guy with the thing with it. How the How I can tell that guy? Fucking get off my fucking land. Like whoa! Like, and they're communicating back and forth with each other like this, and it sounds like. Remember that cantina scene in Star Wars? You ever seen? And they're all like speaking all these crazy languages. Yeah. That's what it's like. It's like being in this like weird starport, but yeah. they're speaking English. You know. It's a... Yeah, and my my best friend there, Ben. He he was he used to be a translator for the United Nations, so he speaks fluently seven languages, but he knows more than that. And wow. so fluently, so he just goes around. <laughs> we're, we're we're buddies. We're side by side all the time, and he's helping me out. You have to, like, if you speak fluently seven languages, you have to kind of practice those languages all the time, right, to keep them fluent? I'm pretty sure, but that's what he was doing where, I mean, yes, but that's what he was doing when he was at the United Nations for the, the Russians because he speaks, I mean, he's a Congolese guy that's speaking Russian. I'm like, that's crazy. Whenever we see any Russian soldiers, he would just go on in, in a conversation with them. English is, is one of his, not his worst because he's, he's great at it, um, but, yeah, all the other languages he's super fluent in. It's so fascinating. It's like that that story from the Bible about the Tower of Babel, you know, that the idea being that this was all like some sort of a plan to keep people from being able to communicate with each other. I mean, it's probably indicative of like how frustrating it must be to realize that there are, I mean, I don't know how many languages there are worldwide, but I think it's over a thousand, right? Yeah. If there's 200 in Congo, it's got to be. Yeah. But imagine. I mean, I mean, how the fuck, until you have some sort of a program that translates them or until, until someone creates a universal language and gets people to adopt it. But shit, we won't even adopt the metric system. <laughs> you know, I mean, when I was in high school, they tried that shit. They tried to push the someday everyone's going to be. And I remember everyone in the class was like, fuck this. Nobody's going to adopt this. You know, we, we lived 15 years learning about inches and yards and we're not into meters. You know, we don't really care. And yeah. it's it seems like it's incredibly frustrated for people to communicate without some sort of a universal translator whether it's a program or something but even then without a universal language 
it's 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 going to be really hard for people to relate to each other and to to not like it's it's easy to look at someone who's speaking some crazy language like people in Afghanistan or people in Saudi Arabia and think of them as like not us because they don't they don't speak the way we speak if we heard someone in Afghanistan speaking total fluent English we would think of them way different than if you hear them in some crazy Arabic language we we, we totally don't understand yeah yeah without a doubt language is something that I wish I had a gift at <laughs> uh, like I, I just I, I really wish I could just grasp it and speak it so well but I, I really think just immersion into it is the way that you really start to to pick it up because I, I, I found myself just you know able to start learning Swahili and then someone's over to the side and they make a little joke and I could I, I would be able to start laughing with them you but understand then, the jokes yeah sometimes like sometimes for what's sure a, what's a good Swahili joke good Swahili joke um, I'm not I'm not sure it was like almost two white guys walk into a bar <laughs> yeah well they call us Mazungus so that's they the, both have um, diarrhea <laughs> 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 like would they call you what Mazungu. What? That's what guys call tits, isn't it? The same thing. Mazungas? <laughs> Mazungu? Related? Uh, Mazungas no? or something like that? Yeah. Mazungu is uh, definitely, they just mean that for white men. That's Swahili. Wazungu. Mazungu. Mazungu. Mm -hmm. Is that um, like derogatory? Like howly? Like Hawaiians uh, call a... Uh... It, it, I, I think it is, but to them it's so, it's so, uh, I, I embrace it though. I embrace it and I'll, I'll say it with them if the kids are saying it and stuff like that. Um, but for them, it's just more everybody sticks to their tribe. And I think that's a problem with some of the violence that goes on there. I mean, a lot of times you'll hear people in Congo saying that in um, other parts of Africa saying, well, we weren't the ones that chose the boundaries of our country, you know, as the people that colonize us, stuff like that. And so we would have been off on our own in, in this region because this is our language and this is our tribe. And so there's, I think that's why there's a lot of tribal conflict and things like that in different languages. And, and so people will, will pride themselves in their culture, which I, I love cultures. It's, it's great. Um, the pygmy culture is awesome. In fact, I mean, there's, there's like some great photos in there of, of, of hunting and a, a little boy getting his first hunt, which is, is great. His name's Sangi in the same village that you guys sponsored a water well for. Um, and so I, I love cultures. And but, this little boy, what did he hunt with? Is these uh, oh, what is that? Are they, a spear? Yeah, it's Whoa. a spear. He got Pull a up that forest picture. antelope. Oh. So I was there and, and had just woke up, and uh, this is early in the morning. I don't know if you can tell. It's kind of like a how tall a, is that little dog. fella? Uh, he's he's a little dude. I, there's another picture of me standing by him, so you'll see. But and he got it with a spear. With that spear that he's holding, mm -hmm. that seems like a heavy spear for a little guy like yeah, that. Yeah, it's his great grandfather spear. So his grandfather took him out hunting, wow. and he was the one that got it. Oh, he's got the animal. So there's the head. head. How yeah. cute! <laughs> so there's another wow. picture of it. And if you go to the next one, there's a. It's it's called a. I think they call it a genet or spotted genet. What it's almost that? like a, more like a mongoose, but it's kind of like in the leopard. I mean, like it'll be like a cross between a mongoose Whoa. and a leopard or something. A small leopard because they're they're pretty small in size. The that next is picture shows wild. they eat that. Yeah, totally. They eat everything, man. Wow. So so you can see how small he is. Yeah. How old is that little guy? I, I think he's probably around twelve. They don't know their age, so. Wow, they um, don't know their age. That's fascinating. So there's some of the men in the village, but if you if you go back to that last one, you can even see uh, the bellies on the little guys, um, down right there. 
You can see the oh, big, God. big infected bellies of of different kinds of parasites and sickness, wow. waterborne disease. That is nuts, um, man. And these people have a clean water well now. Yeah, absolutely. How, does it? Do you have to give them medicine to get rid of that belly, or does it go? Does it go away just with clean water? It doesn't go away just with clean water, but but the sickness drops um, about eighty five percent. But what we do is we have um, different nurses and things that that are partnered with the university, and we send them out, and they. The pills are like, I mean, a dollar for like 10 of them, and you can give one pill to each of them. And it's, it's not a fun process, man. They either vomit or, or, or have to, they have to get the worms out of them. It has so, to kill these biological entities uh -huh. inside their body, so it's poison, essentially. Yeah, I, I, Some yeah. type of poison, right? Definitely, and, and they, I mean, I've seen mounds of, of these, I mean, it's mixed with other stuff, but just stumbled upon it, and Ben's like, oh, that's because we gave them the, the pill, like, and I'm like, what is that in there? And there was tapeworms all, all inside this mound of, of, of feces oh. on one of the trails that we're hiking. Wow. So, um, and how come the adults don't have it? They have flat stomachs. Um, I, I think as they get older, I mean, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but I think their body just starts learning to fight it better. And, and some of them have had the medicine, and so they'll, they'll be smarter and, and try not to to, to drink dirty water whenever just from anywhere when these when these little guys are walking around um, now they're being taught you have a clean source of water this is where you get your water from and they can carry little containers or bottles and 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 take those around with them and they do most of their hunting with spears uh, most of bows and arrows I think but they'll they'll drive them into nets and uh, if you keep going down there'll be a picture of the net so um, but they have these nets that's that they, a net yep and they just go and they break uh, these little trees that are starting to grow there maybe three foot tall they break them and they lay a net uh the top of the net on it and then they just kind of weave them in and out of the forest and then what they do together is maybe they get leaves maybe they see an animal and they just drive it into these nets mm -hmm. sometimes uh like with monkeys and parrots and stuff like that they're using their um their bows and arrows which if you go up one picture that shows the the little boys i mean even from that age right there uh those little boys are just nailing anything i mean you give them a target uh, my my wife and I would uh, would get passion fruit, and we what we do is we, we if there's a rotten one, if there's an empty one, um, we would we would roll it to them, and these guys could hit the moving, the, like th this age right here, uh, which I don't know what do you think that's five five years old, they could hit a moving passion fruit target that we're rolling, they could just nail them with their bows and arrows. Wow. There's even a, a, a short video I got of a, of them nailing a uh, a mouse. That's what it is. A mouse. Yeah, there was a mouse in the village, and they wanted to show off to, to Emily. Um, that's my wife, and uh, she came to visit, and it was just it was just really fun because they she wanted to experience their culture, and whenever you show them interest in the culture, they they get really, really excited. Is so, this the video? Yeah, there's the mouse running. I don't know if you can see it around yeah. running around there, but it's it's definitely alive, moving, and I just said, hey, shoot it, <laughs> and. Uh, and just Whoa. nailed it. That's well, that like, was like a foot away. Yeah. I'm not that impressed. But did they eat that mouse? Yeah, they'll eat it. They'll eat it. And then um, wow. they'll even do um, like wow. turtles. They'll, they'll, they'll go out and they'll make backpacks out of turtles. Um, <laughs> that sounds crazy, but they'll, they'll go out and they'll look for the antelope or something like that. And then if they uh, come across a turtle, they'll make out of, uh, I don't know, these little vines. Uh, literally just backpacks where they tie it onto the, the legs of the turtle and they walk around with it. And if they find a, a big thing of meat, then they, they let the turtle go. But if, if they don't, if they come back empty-handed, they, they're going to come back with the turtle.
And these these arrows that they use, like what what do they use for like the the, the feathers for the fletchings and all that the stuff? Fle uh, the feathers are, are leaves. Leaves. So they they make a small slit in the back of the the arrow, and then they slide in a leaf that that's formed just like a feather. And when they when they use the tips, what what's the tip? The tip can be metal. If they find scrap metal somewhere, they can beat it down and and uh, yeah, turn it into a, a very very sharp. Head. Yeah. But then sometimes they have these wicked barbs on them too, um, and then what they use most though they would use, they would use uh, the metal on on smaller game, but on bigger game they use their poison tipped arrows. So they just have it in wood, and they sharpen it down, and they kind of do the spiral at the tip of the the arrow. And then what they do is they take roots and uh, berries, and um, I think that's that's pretty much it. But they get like a basically like poisonous cocktail mm -hmm. that they make, and it turns black, and then they dip the tip. Of the arrow right in it and that's what they use for for something they really want to get a monkey or um, an antelope or anything like that and when they do that doesn't that poison the meat they eat it and I eat it <laughs> so um, I, I guess it could I didn't ever think of that <laughs> maybe I should be careful <laughs> well I would wonder like how does the poison work and if that's the case how are you not ingesting it maybe is it is it local is it like only the spot where the arrow hits that doesn't seem to make sense though or yeah. the bloodstream, maybe, once you drain the blood out of it. They, they shoot it, and then they just track it, and then once it, it falls over dead, they just put it over their shoulders and bring it back. How long do they have to track? Like, how long does it take before the poison kills them? <laughs> this will be kind of funny. Uh, I, I can't really um, follow them very well through the forest. I, I'm, I'm just big and clunking around, and I got hiking boots on or whatever, but they're just fast and quiet. So I've tried to go out on a couple of hunts with them, but, but uh, I, I knew they were just kind of humbly like, um, being nice, like letting me experience their culture. But then I realized these guys are quick, they're quiet, and I'm not. And so I better just let them go off on do, their own and do their thing. Do they hunt barefoot? So Yeah. They do everything barefoot. Everything. Most most time everything barefoot. They, if they can find, like, most of the things that they're wearing on their body is because they've worked for someone or, or, or been a slave for someone, and that was part of their payment was, was clothing. Wow. Clothing or shoes or things like that. But it's mo their, their culture is just to run around. Um, barefoot everywhere. And they got tough feet. It's 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 pretty cool to see like just their feet, the the structure of their feet. They don't have the real high arches and it's not real soft skin, you know. But they can just they can just book it um, through the forest and step on stuff that I'm feeling through my boots. But they just they just keep going. Yeah. Did you ever see that show uh, Dual Survivor? Does like I don't think it's on anymore. But yeah. Yeah. That guy's crazy. The guy walks around barefoot yeah, everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. He does everything. Cody is not Yeah. Name. Yeah. He's a uh, He's a, an odd character. Like, he has this house that he built that's some sort of a sustainable house. It's got, you know, I think, I think it like uses, like, um, sod for the roof or something like that. And, like, his whole deal is, like, surviving with minimal equipment. But he does everything barefoot. He runs around barefoot and his feet are, like, this thick skin. It's disgusting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, you don't want to give that dude a foot massage. Like, yeah, he probably wouldn't feel it. Yeah. It, well, it's like a shoe. I mean, he wears a permanent shoe. Yeah. I guess that's like really what's supposed to happen yeah. to people, you know? Yeah, I think so too. Um, but it's kind of funny, like, you know, you know, you know, from martial arts, but like the bottom of your heel, you could fucking pound on things with your heel. But like that same impact on your shin would be very painful. You know, it's kind of interesting how that works. Yeah. Uh, even on The Ultimate Fighter, Wes Sims, when I fought him, I mean, it was like a minute in a half fight it got him to the ground and and put him in an arm triangle but but before that he fractured a, a small like a small fracture hairline fracture in my foot 
with just a couple of uh, foot stomps. I mean, yeah. he just did it a couple times. I was like, dang, I've never, you know, we didn't train for that in the in the gym and stuff. So I never felt that before. But right when he did it, I knew whenever whenever that f- hairline fracture came, yeah, just being able to stomp with that is. Yeah. Intense. Yeah. The heel is amazingly powerful, which is one of the reasons why I've been sort of a proponent for uh, no gloves. Mm. I, I kind of I've been on this kick for like a, a few months now. I mean, I'd, I'd always been aware that gloves really protect the hands more than they uh, protect uh, the opponent. Definitely. You know, they really protect the guy who's using the gloves more than the guy who you're hitting with. I think it's kind of unnatural in a way, and I think it's also unrealistic. Like wrist wraps as well. Wrist wraps and gloves, I think those probably contribute more to opponents getting hurt than, than anything. Sort of like the same argument that a lot of people think that football would be safer if people didn't wear helmets. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. If you can wheel kick somebody in the head with your heel, which is like one of the most powerful kicks you can throw, like go to... It's like, not Barboza? Yeah, Edson so, Barboza yeah. and Terry Edom, which is a crazy knockout. Yeah. The first knockout ever in the UFC from a wheel kick. But if that is legal, like, and you could spin and kick someone with the heel, why do your knuckles have a pad on them? That seems completely ridiculous to me. It doesn't make any sense. And it seems also like an unrealistic depiction of martial arts. Of course, if you want to go that route, you would say, well, you shouldn't wear cups either because that's kind of unrealistic too. Yeah, I, but, I like wearing that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big fan but, of kicking people in the balls. Yeah, but even even with the gloves being able to hook into it, you know, mm-hmm. hook oh, into yeah. it and pull, I mean, that that's a little trick that everyone Well, guys use that to for to submit guys too. Oh, yeah. they, they, I've seen guys get like chokes choke, right? and guillotines where they'll hook their own glove and use it to finish a choke because yeah. it's like you can get some mad leverage along with like grabbing it. Yeah, and that guy's not going to be able to hand fight it very easy. Yeah, all. no, man. Once you hook it, you're allowed to hook your own gloves too, which is another thing you're allowed to hook your own, you're allowed to grab your own shorts. Like say if a guy's trying to get, that. yeah, if you try, guy's trying to get you in a Kimura, you can grab your own shorts and hold on. As long as they're not his. Yeah, as long as they're not his. Wow. Yeah, it's just kind of squirrely, you know. Yeah. But that's it's a frustrating thing too when you see two guys grapple and um, one guy's trying for a takedown, the other guy's grabbing the guy's shorts, and the referee will say stop, and they will stop. But that brief moment where they held on might have been just enough for them to scoot their hips out and and defend. Yeah. You know, I think everybody should wear tights, too. I think everybody should wear, like, old-school Marco Huas, little <laughs> bikini briefs. That would be great. <laughs> Dennis Hallman? Yeah, like Dennis Hallman. <laughs> Dennis Hallman, oh, he almost got fired from the UFC for that, man. I think so. I think there was almost a slip. <laughs> yeah, well, apparently he lost a bet, so Dennis Hallman came out. See if you can find a picture of that, because they're hilarious. Dennis yeah. Hallman came out with the smallest bikini briefs. Yeah, man panties. Pr- man panties. Probably of all time. It was pretty ridiculous. Yeah, they Dennis Superman? Hallman they underwear. Superman? I don't remember, man. I think, I think it had like, Superman. yeah, there they are down there. I think training it had a logo mask. on it. Training was it training mask? mask? <laughs> is that what it said? <laughs> I think it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is what it. But meanwhile, why is that homoerotic? Like, why is everybody upset about that? But like, you know, if they're longer shorts, I mean, his junk is covered up. Do, are we terrified of the upper thigh? Like, what is it? What, what is everyone afraid of? How come you can see his nipples and nobody freaks out? You know. <laughs> That's and when he true. freaks out, the, the guy's bare-chested, but for some reason, having little shorts on is offensive. Yeah. I don't get it. That was even the thing I, I would do to joke around with guys was wear mantis uh, at weigh-ins because they couldn't look into my eyes serious if I had these these leopard uh, man panties on with, with sequins and things like that. That kept guys from looking <laughs> into your eyes? Well, they would they'd grin or something like that, you know? They wouldn't, like, really 
do the the deep stare down if that makes sense you made a post like uh recently like within the last six months saying that you were considering uh coming back to fighting potentially yeah i mean i i think i should give it a shot um how old are you now 27. you're still young I'm, I'm a year younger than the youngest dude i fought so in my 15 fights the youngest guy was 28 years old and i think i was 19 or 20. and so i mean i think that that the reason i would want to really at least give it my, my full effort, at least for a season, at least for a year or two, see, see what I can do. See, I'm not taking, you know, big, really tough fights, you know, right when I come back, but to build my way back up. Um, because if I could use the platform of fighting to, to and, and the name of, of the nonprofit is Fight for the Forgotten. If I could literally fight for the forgotten and, and, and fulfill my first promise to give them a voice, then man, I'm passionate about both. Those are like my two greatest passions, you know, is, is is MMA? I can't. I can't stay away from it. In Congo, if I got to the internet, it was. It was. It was. Yeah. It was straight up the UG the or MMA TV. Yeah. yeah, the underground. It was what I, I had to check. The first thing I was on was how to get my my MMA fix. And then, I mean, I'm so passionate about the pygmies, and uh, and seeing just just what I can do. I mean, there's even a, a an African proverb or a Congolese proverb about mosquitoes. It says, if you think you're too small to make a difference, try sleeping in a room with a mosquito. Or try sleeping in a closed room with a mosquito, and so um, I just think that 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 me in my mind, like at first when I got there, it's like there's no way I can make a difference. Um, and then and then I, I met some great people that already were had a heart for it. And then if I could use fighting as a platform, um, I'm passionate about it. If I can use a platform to say, hey, for my win bonus, we're gonna buy this much more land, or we're gonna drill three more water wells, or we're gonna you know fund this new farming project. Um, I think if I didn't do it, I'd be an old man one day wondering, what if? What if I would have tried it? You know, and if I just went to the jungle, because I would love, I mean, I feel like I could be completely content with living in a twig and leaf hut for, I don't know, maybe the rest of my life, at least for a while. But if I just did that, then, you know, then nobody's going to know about it. Nobody's going to support it. Um, and so if I could use this as, a, as just a tool, a platform, um, I would have to take it super serious. There's no way I could just, you know, lackadaisically come back into fighting. But um, have but you I, been training at all? I'm getting back into it with a team takedown. Yeah. Yeah, Dallas Fort Worth. Oh, okay. So yeah. are you living out there now? Yeah, I am. So that's where. Great my, spot. That's a great place to train. Yeah, dude. I I love how Mark Lehman trains. Um, just he's a genius. Yeah. I mean, I've I've never seen it in a, a gym. Maybe you have out here in Cali. But we, we walk into the cage, or they do. I've only done a few times there, but, but that's going to be my gym, I think. And so whenever, whenever you walk in, he, he's got the, the flat screens all around the cage, and he's got his, his Mac, and uh, if he's showing you a move, he'll show you three, four, five fights that, that, he's, that this move has been finished in in the UFC or other promotions. And um, so if you doubt him, he's going to say, hey, pull up to his assistant. He'll say, hey, pull this, this fight up this, you know, this much into it. And then he'll, he'll start breaking down the fight, breaking down the move, the setup, and how to finish. So I, I think it's great. Yeah, he's a wizard when it yeah. comes to uh, MMA knowledge and jiu-jitsu knowledge. Like, he always has been. Like, he's always been, like, completely engrossed in the world of jiu-jitsu. He was one yeah. of those guys, like, way back in the day that had, like, all these moves categorized. And he had, like, folders and files yeah. for basically every move. I never even heard of anybody that, like, sort of broke it down the way he did. Yeah, so that, that's what I love about that team. Whenever I walked in there, I was thoroughly impressed because they treat it like any other 
um, like a professional sport. sport. Yeah. yeah, you walk in and 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 the water, the supplements, the whatever you need is at your disposal. And then whenever you get in there to train, you have five full-time coaches that are paid, you know, just to train you. So you get a lot of focus, and they're they're training the guys really right. I like what they're doing with heavyweights actually with uh, Rochalt. Um, he's training five days a week, and what I used to do is always train six days a week, and I'd train two to three times a day, and that's what Brennan would do, and that's what Shane would do, and that's what, you know, I think attributed to a lot of our our, our injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, but with Rochalt, they train five days a week and make sure they're getting his cardio up. But he can't train like a 125 pounder, 135 pounder. You know, we're, heavyweights are taking more of a pounding on their body, so you got to find a way to, to, to not just train harder, but train smarter. That's interesting. Um, is it just because of the the gravity, just carrying the extra weight, the, uh, the pressure on the joints? Like, why do you think that a heavyweight can only train five days a week? Like, what is it? I don't, I don't think they can only train five days a week, but I think it's a smart move uh, for for Rochalt and. And I think it would be a smart move for me to do too. Um, and maybe other guys would adopt it. I don't know. But for me, whenever you look at the heavyweight division, I mean, they can end the fight at any minute, you know. And you look at the 145, 135, 125, the smaller guys, they're really exciting fights. Super talented guys, world class, without a doubt. But sometimes there's just not the same weight and power behind their punches, um, behind their takedowns, behind everything. I mean, it, it goes from, you know, 255 pounders equal almost one of us, you know, or mm-hmm. a little more than one of us. And then and then now you have 500 pounds colliding into the mat whenever you're taking someone down or punching. There's just all this stuff that, that I think you take a, a lot more of a beating on your body. Well, certainly cardio-wise, it's very difficult. That's what makes Kane so unique is that he, yeah. can, he can keep up a pace that's usually reserved for people that are like 170. He can do at 240. Mm-hmm. He's he's so unique in that way, right? And maybe if if on the the if you're going to train six days, it's something that's specifically about recovery or cardio, or both. Um, because the way that we were doing it at, at Grudge, and and that's a world class gym, I love it. But um, something I look back and see from assessing, just just my opinion, is man, we were we were, you know, three days a week training sparring hard, and for heavyweight sparring hard, three days a week you're taking. You're, you're taking a lot of punishment. You're dishing out a lot of punishment, and so we're we're you don't even have time on Sunday. It's not it's not enough time to to rest and to recuperate and to, to for your body to heal up. Yeah, especially if you're sparring Shane fucking Carwell. Oh yeah, dude, that guy that guy was scary. Um, still scary. It's still still scary, absolutely. But whenever he would he would throw a hook, you would your body would would quake. It would send like a ripple effect through your body. Yeah, he's a big boy. Yeah, big ass bones too. Yeah. Yeah, and again, his issue was the same issue. It was cardio. I mean, yeah. go to the Brock Lesnar fight. I mean, he had Brock Lesnar all but out in that first mm-hmm. round. But the second round came around, and he just was spent. He yeah. just emptied his gas tank in that first round. And if you, if you look at it, though, he he was, I mean, if you look at how he's training, he was training six days a week, and so somehow that cardio didn't come in even training six days a week. So um, I, I don't know what the, I think maybe it was also that adrenaline dump. I think he was going to mm, finish off Brock sure. all that other stuff. He forgot Lots to breathe. Yeah. He was talking about how when he was punching him, he literally forgot to breathe. Yeah. Because he was just, he figured like, let's just sprint and this is going to be the end here. Yeah, but well, it was very close to being the end. So I could, I as, can understand what his mind frame was. As close as you could ever get. Yeah. I mean, it was like many people would have stopped that fight. Many refs would have stopped that fight. Yeah, absolutely. It's cool they gave, I mean, it's cool they gave Brock a chance to, to recover. I mean, I, 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 I love Carwin and he's a, a great friend and he's a good, great, great person. 
but it's it's cool to see whenever a guy can have that time to recover and see during the round them recover and then come back and, and win. Yeah, that was an issue this weekend. Um, like the Dan Henderson fight in particular, like that fight was stopped. Yeah. Like fairly quickly, he got tagged by Gegard Mousasi, and. In a way, I kind of understand because I think that uh, referees sometimes will look at a guy who's older and judge it slightly differently than a guy like maybe say who's who's younger. Like uh, like Frank, I always go to this one example: Frankie Edgar Gray Maynard. They could have stopped that fight multiple times, and Frankie came on to stop Gray Maynard in the second fight. Wow! You know, I mean, it was, a, it was an amazing, amazing fight. But if you go back and and watch that fight, watch that first round. There's so many moments where you say, like, if a guy was quick to pull the trigger, mm -hmm. it could be over. Not everybody's Frankie Edgar either. Like, the other one was um, uh, this weekend, uh, Andy Ogle, and uh, I don't want to mispronounce his name, so let me say it right. Oh, the guy from, that was Finnish, but, yeah. but from Iraq, right? Yeah. Um, hold on a second. I actually <laughs> missed, missed that fight. I didn't see it. Makwan Americana, who is a bad motherfucker. This kid, first of all, this kid goes into the octagon and does these perfect flips. Like, and you could, see, like, right away, you could say, like, whoa, like, this kid is like a serious gymnast. And then hits Andy Ogle with this ridiculous flying knee, like, launched across the ring, tags him with this flying knee, and then tags him with an uppercut, and then the referee stopped the fight. And I, I even said, I probably shouldn't have said that I, I thought it was a, a premature stoppage. The referee could see better than I can, obviously, like, whether or not a guy's eyes rolled behind his head. But, you know, Andy Ogle was pretty upset, and maybe I was going on that. But the, the stoppage in that fight was, it, it's, it was certainly more understandable i think than the henderson fight the henderson fight was like one shot mm -hmm. and he went down and then stumbled kind of back well he tagged him uh, i mean it was kind of, of grazing head, right? but it was kind of like the temple area yeah. which always fucks with your equilibrium yeah but this uh amir Khani hit him with this flying knee like he traveled so far like if you watch the flying knee see if you can find it jamie this is his opening move he hits him with this ridiculous flying knee wow. i mean it was just he launched himself like 14, 15 feet oh, across the... The kid's a freak athlete, man. And I'd heard that about him uh, entering into this How fight. How quick too. was the fight? Eight seconds. Wow. Yeah, man. It was amazing. He's uh, he's pretty impressive. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> he said... <laughs> I, I, is that what he said about me? I thought he, I thought he was a drunk. That's what he said about me? <laughs> <laughs> he's a funny dude, man. Yeah. He's got a loud personality, too, man. He's oh, very funny. Great. Very funny. That, but find the fight itself. Don't just pull shit up. I can't look at it without. I think. I think the thing with. Uh, you can't look at it without us seeing it. Yeah. Why is that? The way it's set up currently. Oh, but the audience doesn't see it. Is that what's going on? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's fine. Um, but uh, I think with that Dan Henderson fight, I think maybe the the angle because I, I I watched it a couple times and I think maybe the angle of the ref he was kind of maybe behind, kind of uh, Masasi whenever he, he he hit him and then whenever. Whenever Hindo's head kind of hit the back of the cage, maybe that, that scared the ref and prompted him to stop it early. Um, I always wonder when you go to new places, too, uh, whether or not commissions are more sensitive, you know, because, yeah. like, maybe Sweden has, like, less sensitive uh, or, or referees are more sensitive to fighters getting injured. Like, we find that in Boston. In Boston, they stop cuts. 
they stop fights on cuts way quicker than other places. Like mm -hmm. Mark De La Grate, who's from Boston, told me they've always had issues with that. Like in Boston, when fighters get cut, they, they'll stop it way quicker than they would, say, in Vegas. Were these all Swedish refs? Were kind of from that area? No. Okay. Um, a lot of the guys were English guys. Okay. Um, it was it was different. You know? I know in, uh, in Finland they have the brutal MMA that you can headbutt still and in all Finland? that stuff. Right? Isn't that right? Is that what? I, I mean, they, at least a couple years ago, whenever... I went to Golden Glory out in Amsterdam, and, and uh, with I was training with Alistair for a bit, but also, uh, do you remember John Olav Animo? Yeah. I think, yeah. Uh, John Olav Animo. Right? Uh, Animo, yeah. Who is a uh, Abu Dhabi champion. Yeah. Fantastic Man, grappler. Dude, absolutely a beast on the ground. He was like a, uh, I don't know, like like a spider. His mm -hmm. legs and everything was were, were nuts how they could wrap around you. Um, but he was from Norway, and there, MMA, they just, they, they were very, very resistant. And this was when I was training with them back in like 2008, I think. But they were very, very resistant to it. I thought it was a brutal, barbaric sport, all that. But then in Finland, just a couple countries away, you could still headbutt. And that's where he was getting some of his first fights, I think. And wow. So just such a, a contrast in, in how they viewed the sport. This is the flying knee. Watch this kid. Oh, <laughs> the kid just flies oh. out. Wow. That was... I mean, it was a it was a quick, a quick stoppage, fight, but man. man, that kid, just, that flying he's knee an is athlete. fucking incredible. <laughs> Look at that! I think he only took like three or four steps. Yeah. Before he launched in the air. Wow. Yeah, and Ogle tried to ref uh, tackle the referee, <laughs> which is always bad. Yeah. I just, you know, I get sensitive because Ogle was in the cage. He was f super freaked out and upset. He thought the fight was stopped too quickly. It's a weird thing, man. It's hard to say when to stop and when not to. Yeah. It's hard. You want to give a guy a chance to recover, but you also want to save the guy from unnecessary punishment if he can't defend yeah, himself. Absolutely. They have the fucking hardest job in the world next to fighters as referees. Yeah, man. I wouldn't want to know all the backlash that they get. I think it's like fighters number one, of course, referees number two, judges three. Yeah. You, know? you four? Some of the... I think I'm way down the line. It's okay. like Bruce Buffer's job's probably harder than mine. I mean, my job is I'm just reacting to mm -hmm. things, you know? The only time it becomes an issue is like things like if I'm critical of a stoppage or if I'm critical of judging and then it becomes a point of debate. But I think that the controversy, you know, especially subjective controversy, whether it's uh, you, you can agree or disagree, I think it's, it's important because it, it starts the discussion hmm. like of, you know, what should be legal, what shouldn't be legal, what should happen, what shouldn't happen. Like there's a lot of people that have like some really strong feelings about the shape of the gloves right now and the, that they're contributing to eye pokes. Hmm. And that's something I've had some recent conversations with Dana and with Lorenzo and they're of the opinion, I think, that uh, the fighters need to be penalized more because the gloves have been the same for a long time, but back in the day, it wasn't nearly as much of an issue. If you go back to like, you know, UFC 37 and a half or UFC 40 or UFC, you don't see a lot of eye pokes. But now it's hard to go one fight or one event rather without a couple of fights having eye poke issues. It's super common. And I think maybe you can attribute that to a lot of Muay Thai training because a lot of guys yeah, are doing absolutely. this which is really common in Muay Thai and step in with knees and, you know, all these guys who do these things with gloves on, which are, you know, totally fine with a glove on. Yeah. You're palming a guy's face with a glove on and then throwing leg kicks or a knee or elbows behind it. But doing it with his fucking fingers, man, fingers just go in the eyes so much. It drives me crazy. And when you see a guy like Bisping, who's 
he's got one eye that looks completely different from his other eye now wow. because of surgery, detached retina surgery, and then they have to put oil inside his retina. And I don't wow. even know how much he can see out of his right eye. But when you look at him in the eyes, his uh, his one eye looks very different than the other eye. The other wow. eye, Alan Belcher. Same thing. Even Anthony Johnson had a problem with that, right? Yeah, with Kevin Burns. Yeah, right. Kevin Burns poked him in the eye. And then in this fight, Gustafson accidentally poked him in yeah. the eye. It, they're totally accidental, but it's like this thing where guys are doing that. John Jones yep. is the number one guy as far as uh, like the Keep controversy. Yeah, for sure. Because he's so tall and long. That's a, an excellent strategy to, to. He's almost like doing that cartoon thing where he puts his yeah. hand on your head and you're swinging because <laughs> he can't reach him. Yeah. So I wonder if there's a way to cover the fingers. You know, I've always wondered. I mean, this is a kind of hypocritical because I think they shouldn't be wearing gloves at all. But I wonder if there's a way to to like like put like some sort of a soft leather over the tips of the fingers. Like have the you know those old school Everlast boxing yeah. gloves, those bag gloves. Uh -huh. Remember those? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They had the little bar inside them almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had the bar things. inside of them. I don't know why they had the bar. Why yeah. was the bar there? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't make any sense. Yeah. But those those gloves um, almost like would be better. Like some people think that it would be bad for grappling because the fingers wouldn't they wouldn't work as individuals. But you never really do this anyway. You know, if you use your thumbs at all, you kind of use it like this. It's yeah. very rare that you hook a finger and right. a thumb together. I think the pride gloves you weren't really. They too, were more. Too. We have a pair of them around here somewhere. Do we yeah. have a pair of them still? The pride gloves they had far less problems, but. You know, Krokop and Josh Barnett, that was an issue. Um, I mean, it gets, it, it happens. Guys get poked in the eye. It's almost like, it seems like it's inevitable, but Dana's opinion is that they should be penalized. Every time there's an eye poke, one point, which, yeah, I mean, it's you, pretty you harsh, but you wouldn't do it. Yeah, yeah you, wouldn't you would. I, I've never had a, I'm, in, in my fights, I never had a problem. Uh, the pride gloves are blue, Jamie. Yeah, I never had a problem poking a guy in the eye. Yeah. I got poked in the eye once, and it, it absolutely sucks because for the whole round, my my vision was was like it, it would double and it would turn black and it would just it just jacked with me the, yeah, the entire go. round. These are the pride gloves. Um, Brian from London Real gave me these. That's awesome. Thank you, Brian. Um, Piece yeah, of history. <clears throat> yeah, these are uh, nobody fought with these on, but these are the the original pride gloves. They're so they're very different, and there there's a pronounced curve to them that you don't get from the, uh, the the gloves the UFC uses. Everlast, which is now a sponsor of the UFC, <clears throat> or uh, I don't know if you'd say sponsor or a partner, or they're working together with the UFC, I guess we're going to use the Everlast gloves. Everlast has an excellent MMA glove that is more curved than the uh, the ones that we use now. These also are longer. These, yeah, and they're they're easy to, to form, too. Whenever you get those UFC gloves, you, you instantly have to start breaking them in, you mm -hmm. know? And so... I can see the argument of it making it harder to, to close your hands sometimes because if they're not broken in like this, then it's Yeah, hard. look, these automatically make your hands curve, like automatically. It's like by default your hand wants to curve. I would think these would be, why don't they just go back to fucking pride gloves? <laughs> I don't understand. Why don't they go back to this? This seems like a good glove. Yeah, absolutely, man. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I just feel like there's a better way. And I feel like if you do, you know, that's that expression, like, what's the definition of insanity? Do the same thing over oh, and over no. again, expect a different result. Right. You know, it's just, just, it seems like the gloves that we have now, everyone says the same thing. Every fighter that I've talked to, that it, it actually, they make your hands straighten out, especially as your hands fatigue, as the rounds go on. They literally make your hands straighten out. 
But the Bellator gloves um, that they're using that Everlast designed are far more curved. So Everlast has like their own sort of um, patented technology, their patented design. And uh, they're also having less hand brakes too. Uh, I didn't know that at all. Yeah, yeah. Bellator did, they did some sort of a study on hand brakes before the new gloves and hand brakes after the new gloves. And they have much less brakes after the new gloves because of the, the shape of it and the um, support on the top of the glove. It lends more support to the, the metacarpals, I guess. Wow. I don't know. Just see, but then again, like I said, I think they should be bare knuckled. I really do. I think if you can hit somebody yeah, with a shin. I was just about to ask you that. Do you think you would ever go back to that? Probably not, right? I think it's too ingrained or too adopted, too part of the culture now. I don't know, man. It's a weird thing. It's like, why Why is everybody so hung up on like everything staying the same? First of all, I think cups. Cups are a, a, a huge goddamn issue. All right? Guys get hit with glancing blows to the sack, and they go down. Mm -hmm. um, I think th there's a lot of guys that wear really shitty cups. Like, there's some, like, you've seen, if you've worn the Diamond MMA club. I have Oh, I heard get them great. One. Get them one. We have them in the back. Oh, sweet. That's awesome. Yeah, we'll give you one. I had one in one Might not fight. fit your fucking yeah. giant strapping <laughs> glutes, you savage. But uh, <laughs> if they do fit, see if you get a, a large or extra, probably extra large, whatever the bigger ones are. But Diamond's figured out a way to make this compression short with all these straps and this cup that is like sort of it's got a rubberized outside but it's hard as fuck around it and the compression shorts keep the 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 uh, cup right over your junk and you could take full blast shots and you're it's not going to feel good but it feels way better than anything else I've ever used. Yeah, I've I've had it the same fight I got my my eye poked. Um, I got a groin shot that splintered my cup. Oh, it splintered my cup and and uh I, I had a little cut, a little cut from it. Oh, <laughs> so I it got was kicked. up in the pubic area, but it was it was brutal, and uh, I hated hated that. And then I wanted to go to steel cups, which it's got this in it. Well, the steel cup is, I think, or, probably one of the best. The Thai steel cup. See, that's uh, that's their design. It's a very good design of a cup, but there's nothing too extraordinary about it. But what's what's really interesting is the way it fits into the um, compression shorts. The com and this, they, they're constantly redesigning it. They just had a new updated design that just sent me a couple of weeks ago. But um, I had uh, one incident in jujitsu where I wasn't wearing a cup and I had a lot of bleeding. <laughs> um, and uh, since then I went to cups. But a lot of guys say that the steel tie cup is uh, one of the best uh, solutions too because you could tie that fucker up tight. It feels super uncomfortable, you know, when it goes up your asshole area and yeah. g-string style but when it's tied in like really fucking tied in that's one of the best ways to uh to protect yourself too yeah. but they they outlawed steel cups in uh jiu-jitsu matches wow oh yeah because of stuff like frank Mir, right with uh breaking that yeah well the floor. leverage you yeah. i mean it becomes like this insane fulcrum point because mm -hmm. it's literally steel yeah and when that steel is pressed against your pelvis i mean that's like this crazy lever and if you get an arm there you yeah. know it's 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 really unfair. It's an unfair lever that doesn't exist in nature. It's like the opposite of what nature gives you. Mm -hmm. when in, like I've had a lot of people, like you teach them how to do an arm bar, like, ah, oh, it hurts my balls. Like, yeah, you got to get used to that. Like an arm bar will probably hurt your balls. But if you're wearing a steel cup, it hurts them way more, more than it hurts you. I think that's what popped uh, Tim Sylvia's arm uh, in the forearm, right? 
Well, it's something like certainly that. Frank Mir yanking. Yeah, out well, it, for yeah. sure. No, any he's yeah. an incredible martial artist. Oh, he's a jiu-jitsu guy. Stud jiu-jitsu guy. I mean, One of the best guys get, ever. Whenever you can get Nagara and and do that to him, break uh, his fucking arm. Yeah, man. that's nuts. Man. He's the only guy in the UFC's heavyweight division that's broken two people's bones with submissions. Wow. You know, I mean, Frank Mir will go down in history as one of the greatest submission guys ever. Yeah, for sure. The times I grappled with him, I was like, wow, he's amazing. Oh, he's a stud. Um, he's a guy who's got a lot of fucking miles, man. He's he's fought a lot of fucking hard fights, but um, those uh, those steel cups, like you can't wear them anymore in jujitsu matches. So I mean, I wonder how long before people recognize that in MMA and say, because right now you could get away with wearing a steel cup, but like, you ever had someone mount you and they have a steel cup on and oh, they compress your, your your sternum? Yeah. yeah, it's brutal. It's brutal. Yeah, mm -hmm. those are dangerous, man. In that, in that way. Well, hey, man, thank you for this one. I'm oh, excited. Please. I'm excited to give it a give it a whirl. Yeah, those guys are pretty dedicated, man. Those diamond M I shouldn't say pretty. They're very dedicated. <laughs> those diamond MMA guys. They've done a lot of. They're constantly redesigning that thing too. Mm. But I think that's an issue. Like, there's guys who wear like the standard jock strap with like the little silly cup inside of it. That's just fine if you're playing softball, you know. But God damn it, when you're getting kicked. The, you, we really need like uh, a better a better design when it comes when it comes to that. Definitely, man. Yeah, thank you so much for this. And I also want to thank you, man, coming in here because uh, the village of Babofi is the village that you guys sponsored, and um, they got a water well. So I'm just thankful you're giving me this. You sponsor my family getting water. We even had, I mean, if it's okay, I could show you a picture. Yeah, yeah, please. Of uh, of this is kind of the drilling process right here of like, is the that, tripod. Um, is um, that something you brought over there? Yeah. Well, the, the tripod legs we bought in Uganda, and then we, we hauled them over. Um, so that's that's our drillers. They get ready. They put it on that tripod. This is us getting ready in Bobofi to put the uh, the pump down. Um, and so that those bricks in that circular, it's uh, the cement well pad that we're getting ready to do. But first, got to put the PVC down and put the pump. Um, How do you find where to drill? Do you get one of those dudes that has that chicken bone <laughs> thing? Does that no. shit work? No. The divining? I, I'm not sure if that works, but but there's there's a, some expensive equipment that you can get, but we we really there for for the things that they're going to do, and where they are in the rainforest. There's water there. There's clean water. It's just under your feet. You got to get to it, and so most people don't know how to get to it. So we we show them how to get down there to it, and so it's once it's below six meters or, or 20 feet, um, the water force system uh, has been approved by USA a USAID and the UN. And all these places saying it's just as safe as as a lot of mechanicized rigs. And so what, what they do is they, they drill it down there. And um, you, once you get to a certain depth, you can put a cement, um, a cement pad that protects it at the top. But you also put like a clay sanitary seal up uh, from, from six meters and above. And then that clay, makes it hard. A clay sanitary seal. A clay sanitary seal. Do yeah. you guys make that or is it something you purchase? Like how does you, that work? You can purchase it. Um, Did you guys make it? What we do is we go find it from a, a hill. A I'll hill on a t-shirt. There we go. Look at you. Yeah. So that helped me out too over there. So you, you, you helped me out a lot over there. Um, but what the sanitary seal does is one meter of clay, it can take 100 years for, for, for water to get through. A one layer um, impermeable, uh, impermeable clay. And so if you can put that down there, then it takes a long time. So any, any ground contaminants that are trying to pass through that, first you have the cement pad that we put on, and then you have the clay sanitary seal beyond that, and then it's it's not going to let the, the ground contaminants and, and other kinds of waterborne disease get down into our, our, our clean aquifer. So we find we try to find a, a good aquifer that's going to keep refilling. 
um, that's that's fresh water, clean water. We test it, all that. And um, did you have failed wells where you tried to make yeah, some? Yeah, yeah, we did. We we the first probably seven or eight we failed because I had like a short training here. Then they also sent over a guy that had had done 28 water wells in Congo. And I was like, great, he's a Congolese guy all the way across the country. And we flew him out and he had, he was 28 for 28. He had never failed a well. And then we got out there and we, we hit seven in a row that we, we failed. Whoa. And so, um, so when you say failed, like it didn't give you any water or it was bad water? Well, I guess, I guess, sorry, what we should, what I should have said was seven holes fail. And so what we're doing is we're looking for the water. And sometimes you're, you're digging and you come across a layer of, of granite or a layer of, of our problem was sandstone. What would happen was we'd have these clay or these, um, these augers that have like these claws on it. And it, we'd pull out scoop after scoop after scoop and a foot at a time. And sometimes you get to like a sandstone layer. And if you get to that, it's hard to advance through. And so a lot of times you do need a machine that helps you get through that. And so Water 4 has been helping us with that. And so normally under that sandstone layer, there's, there's fresh, like a very good, powerful aquifer that's going to you have to probably be careful about ruining your equipment on yeah that yeah too, that's right? what uh, these we didn't want to 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 waste our our tools so what we do is we we'd pick up and we'd move because we can't make those tools yet um in congo so we're bringing them from the the states and it's high quality stuff um hopefully one day we do have a metal shop there that we can start trying to produce things that will will just blast through you know softer layers um and so you're doing this not just in the, the pygmy villages, but in also these neighboring villages, too, to try to help these people out so that they don't get angry at the pygmies for having this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So how many of these wells have you guys 15. completed? Wow. Fifteen water wells. There's, each one of them is serving hundreds of people. This is Bobofi. This is the JRE uh, well, this is the Joe Rogan Experience water well. We're, <laughs> that's so cool. We're dancing around it. Look how happy and, those uh, people are. That's so uh, cool. That's actually saying gee on my shoulders on that other picture. Um, the the hunter that oh, killed those two kid. things. Oh, yeah. that's so cool. So on my shoulders, if you go down, this is uh, the chief's wife, and uh, she took one of our well driller's sunglasses, <laughs> and she's uh, <laughs> she was the second one to pump, and uh, so she loved it. So that more. thing that's on top, that blue metal thing, is that metal? What is that thing that the we're blue? looking at that's pouring into the bucket? Um, the blue is actually just a, a bucket that's holding our cement. Um, so it's like a it, we use it as a form so we could pour the cement inside of it that protects the 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 pipes that are coming up from deep in the ground and the pump is a hand unit is that how it works yeah it's it's basically like a t handle and you you grab each side you pull up pump like down pull up pump down an old school cartoon dynamite thing yeah Boom. absolutely and every time you go down it, it sprays out i don't know maybe 10 ounces of water wow that's amazing yeah. So what is the quality of life change for these people now that they have this clean water? I mean, it must be amazing. Yeah, they, they've they've never <laughs> they've never uh, seen clean water before. That's ever. so crazy. They've never tasted it, except for maybe rainwater, but they don't have a way to collect it. So it's like them going out and, and uh, if you go to the folder saying bad water. How often does it rain um, there? It rains it rains quite often but they don't they don't collect the water it's easier for them to go to where the the water sat where the the creeks or streams that rose to get their their water there well it seems like that would be an awesome supplement as well so that's the water that they usually get yeah that wow. that actually isn't that's actually a pretty good one but i i thought what was cool here was she was using the leaf as a funnel but she would know. scoop it and pour it into the into the container but yeah that's completely dirty contaminated that's where the the antelopes and other animals are going to to, to get water and then they you know shitting it yeah absolutely man giardia is something that people get from mm -hmm. gophers and shit and all these different animal beavers yeah. i had typhoid while i was there what is typhoid like 
Um, it's it's brutal. Um, but I had it at the same time. That's why they misdiagnosed me with malaria. They thought that I had um, typhoid because I it was I had I'd gotten typhoid, but like a small amount of it. And then um, so they started treating me for typhoid. And um, but it was so it, since it was mixed with malaria, I don't know if if that was why malaria was so so brutal. I mean, I got it from two different sources. I obviously had dirty dirty water. Someone cooked with dirty water um, and and ingested the typhoid fever and then um so cooking with dirty water even if you boil the water it's still uh you still get some of those illnesses uh, you, you can if you don't cook it correctly right if you don't get it really really hot and sometimes out here you're just cooking over a fire mm -hmm. um and just sticks and and you put on a, a bowl over it and it's uh it's uh, it has to get to that boiling point and stuff and and if if they don't cook it right or if they add some water to it you know a little later to add some more you can still get sick from that do they have metal pots and pans and stainless steel or cast iron like what are they cooking in yeah a lot of times they do get um well they would make a tripod i wonder if that's um in the folder um they would make a tripod to smoke the meat um and so they would just use wood and leaves to, to cook the the meat but yeah they would get um they would bargain or get the scraps from their either their slave masters or someone they went and worked for they would uh negotiate and bargain uh, labor to get some kind of pot like that's discarded and yeah right there that's great that's that's uh bobofi village the jerry village and um and that's kind of how they cook it so that one i think we brought with us though and they just cook it over the fire that one we got real hot normally they don't they don't waste wood man they don't uh they they just put an x or a cross of uh of wood and they just push it in from the sides mm -hmm. and so basically it's just smoldering there's no real flame and so that's how they cook. It's not even on on a real hot flame. Wow! Yeah, it's, uh, it's so much we take for granted living the, in civilization. Those huts. Uh, maybe you go to the the folder with my wife. Um, it'll show some of the size of the pygmies and then also uh, the huts. But um, it, it's 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 crazy how they live. And this guy's Bajanji, but that behind him is uh, is one of our huts that we we're staying in. Um, so their huts are you know chest chest height to us um and then living there it's crazy there's there's all sorts of stuff that come in there's spiders snakes um uh love those two a lot of poisonous stuff right yeah absolutely a, a crazy story right here in this village was was a spider actually uh emily had gone in there and this is by the way this is her first ever camping trip her first ever time camping she and, went uh, hard yeah that's that's how you go hard yeah, I don't first know if ever camping camp yeah. in the congo wow maybe there's another picture of a hut her and i but it's it's crazy because yeah right there um the rain had beat us there so um going from the roadside to getting to the actual village can take over an hour um it can take an hour and a half hiking and so rain had moved in and it just drenched us on her first night ever camping and then uh and there was roaches well it stopped raining and then you're, you're thinking that it's it's raining but it's actually or that's sprinkling but it's actually the legs of the roaches running on the leaves Whoa. so that, that that freaked her out um and she had to get up and leave and uh <laughs> and i understood you know i walked her out it's gonna be okay she's like because one of the roaches had fallen on on her neck oh. and she that that's when she kind of lost it and i don't know if i can do this wow but but after that she she embraced it and and really fell in love with the people um and then there was another crazy story with this gigantic um spider or at least to me when you'll know why i thought it was gigantic in a minute but uh 
it was it was on her what we would do is we put up a little tent almost like a mosquito net tent inside of the huts so that she could be protected from all the mosquitoes and stuff like that but ben and i would sleep next to that and we we didn't have a mosquito net over us and um all of a sudden she saw this gigantic spider crawling on the mesh and she freaked out and um called for me and then it jumped it's like this tarantula kind of spider and it jumped onto the leaves and that's the wall it's just leaves and sticks um, and so I grabbed a flip-flop trying to kill this uh, tarantula. <laughs> and and whenever, whenever I finally started to hit at it, it slipped right behind one of the leaves and disappeared. Oh, great. And she's like, you didn't kill it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I think I did. And ben, ben, Ben's like, I killed it. Yeah, he killed it. He killed it. And she's like, I want to see a leg, a body, something. I want to see its guts. And um, so anyways, at, right after that, too, there's two chickens sleeping beside her her tent in the the wall she's like get these chickens out of here so i grabbed them got them out but then the next day we woke up and she woke up before me and she was outside the women were kind of painting doing this awesome paintings on a bark cloth so it's cloth that is actually just bark and so they're out there painting it's bark cloth like mm -hmm. what do you mean by cloth oh, like they, they make like a cloth bark? it used to be there it used to be clothing that they would wear like in traditional ceremonies but it'd be cloth that they or bark that they would beat down and it would kind of be like these fibers that would stick together and it would actually be like a, a, a bark cloth. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll have Emily bring you some of it. Um, she's coming out here and we got you a knife um, because they, they can bang down these knives into uh, or bang down these uh, nails into knives. Super wicked looking and, and sharp, but they can make nails into knives. And so we got you one nail. of those. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's it's nuts. The things How they big can are do. these nails that they can turn them into a knife? They're, they're normally pretty big, like from like the lumber guys and stuff, whatever they're doing, if they're building uh, uh, ladders and things like that. Um, and so they, they, they can do everything. And so she was out there um, watching them paint on this bark cloth. I think if you just Google bark cloth, they'll show it too. But um, uh, And then I, I step out of the hut and Ben's standing there. And when Ben's standing there, he looks at me and, uh, and all of a sudden he goes, don't move. And I said, my eyes got big and I said, why? And whenever I said why, all of a sudden I saw that big spider from the night before that tarantula. It was in my, at the time, gigantic, you know, chest length um, beard. And its legs were just coming up right on my face. And, and Ben literally just slapped, slapped you in the oh face. Oh my gosh. So, so hard. <laughs> just smacked me. And, and the, the, the spider fell and um, Emily starts turning around and Ben steps on top of the tarantula because he doesn't want to freak her out. She's like, what just happened? I said, oh, nothing, nothing happened. She's like, what's going on? And Ben's still, you know, moving his foot back and forth, squashing the thing, killing it, uh, making sure it's dead. But um, there's just crazy stuff out there. Like I've, I've been able to pull out, I think Emily and I counted five times in one night that I pulled these little roaches out of my beard because I, I guess they think it's like a nest or something like that. that big, Why are you growing that beard? crazy beard out there, man? Well, I didn't take any beard trimmers with me or anything like that, but also I wanted to see how long it would get in a year. Um, <laughs> and, and it's kind of an icebreaker for me. It's kind of, it's kind of funny or crazy, but for me, um, they, they've never seen something like it. I, I, I look like an animal to them a lot of times walking through. They have these jokes that um, I wouldn't want to wouldn't want to cr come across him in a dark forest, you know, on a, on a, dark, on a dark path. And uh, I've come into the village, actually, Bobofi, that one, um, whenever I first walked in, people grabbed their kids, jumped in their huts, or or, or, or literally just booked it and disappeared through the forest because they didn't They've know. They've never seen anything like you before. Yeah, they never seen a white dude. Um, never seen someone with white skin. And um, Do I mean, they know heard. that white dudes exist? 
I'm, I'm sure I'm sure there they did, um, but they had never seen it, never heard of it. They've heard story. I mean, they've been told at times. It's almost like sometimes uh, white guys are the boogeyman or something. Where um, you know, if 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 you don't behave, a white man's going to come get you or come eat you. Really? I've heard that before. Yeah. And so for me to go in there, they're they're really uh, timid or scared at first until um, until. I develop a relationship with them, and and as goofy as it is, my hair on my my hairy, hairy, enormously hairy uh, arms and and beard and long hair can be an icebreaker. So it can first scare them, then it can be an icebreaker, and then it can be a kind of entertainment for them. They, they braid my hair, they play with my beard, all that. Well, there's some great videos of you that have gone uh, online that people have actually tweeted to me, not even knowing that I know you, of them seeing you for the first time, oh, uh, of yeah. pygmies touching you and touching mm -hmm. your beard and seeing your white skin for the first time. Yeah, it's crazy. Some of the rumors that happened, too, is uh, there was a neighboring village, and he, he had sprinted from Babofi back to Bahaha, and um, when it, like he was visiting there, got terrified, ran away, and basically said that there was a, a, a big white ape that had walked into the village. And uh, <laughs> and basically that was a, a great white Sasquatch or vanilla gorilla. And uh, and he, it made him terrified. And so then he found out that I we had been there. We'd gotten them land. We'd dug a well. We started farming yams and potatoes and beans and corn now there. And so it's uh, it's been it's been pretty funny. Another another thing was. Uh, one of the slave master villages um, had said that I came to uh, to leave. Uh, Jamie, my... do you have your mic on? Is that what's going on? No, it's someone outside. Oh, someone outside. Mm. My real my real uh, reason of being there was that because I would go and I would walk with them to to the dirty water source. If you get, pull up the bad water, I, I, I would carry it with them um, just to experience how long that they would have to walk. Sometimes they were walking five miles five miles um with dirty water with dirty water to come back and cook with and give their kids and drink and bathe and those those uh i think are 20 gallons or 40 liters or something like that but they're they're like 30 40 pounds man and in my neck just doing that with them would get so incredibly sore in these i mean those are are grown women next to me and they're they're walking sometimes with two of them wow. um sometimes they're walking with two of those and or or a one about half that size but the, the other people from the other tribes that are bigger and, and stronger, they're walking with one on top of their head and one over their back. And it's just crazy. And, and, and one of those villages had said, what I really come there to do was study, um, study their, their streams and their creeks. And then I left behind uh, my, my half fish, half woman, uh, at, and stationed them at each, each little creek and each little stream that I was going and investigating. So, so basically they were saying that I had I brought mermaids to, to leave, <laughs> to leave at every every village, wow. and I'm like, where did that come from? Like, where wow. did you guys think I'm coming up with a a, a mermaid um, to come bring and, and leave here? And uh, they didn't say it was evil or anything, but they, they said I was bringing mermaids. It's so strange. It's like you are you know you're living in the 21st century, but it's almost like you're you're going into this land that hasn't changed much in thousands of years, and they still have the same sort of like mythologies and folklore that you'd expect from people that lived before education before the internet before even before books yeah yeah I mean it's 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 like you're going back in time because people don't have um, cell phones a lot of times we what I would do is yeah I would take um, we would take pictures together 
but then I'd come and, and I, would, I would go into town and I brought with me, um, it's called a, I think it's called a selfie. It's like a little Canon printer and uh, I could print off photos that I took. So I'd go back and, and them seeing themselves on my, my camera for the first time. Some of this is their first time seeing themselves Whoa. besides being in a, like a reflection of water or, I mean, they don't have mirrors. Whoa. They don't have cameras. They don't have any of that. So how did they see themselves besides their reflection? And so, but what we would do is, I mean, there's been other people that have come into some of the villages and take pictures and they leave and then they never get to see them. Um, but we would go print them and we'd come back and we'd give them family photos. We'd give them like a family portrait. And, uh, and so, but we would either put it in like almost a Ziploc bag or, or, or kind of do one time we did like this laminate kind of stuff on it because in their living conditions in their huts, with the rain coming through it, with their, their ground sometimes turning to mud that they're sleeping on, um, you know, we wanted to protect the pictures that we were giving them. But just something like that, it's a, it's a small gift to us. But to them, it just blows their mind that you can take a picture of them, a moment in time, you can go print it, and then you can give it back to them. And now they can have it for forever if they keep it, keep it right. That's incredible, man. Is there any superstition involved in photographs like you heard with like the Native Americans? No, not not there. Now in other places like populated areas in, in Congo and Uganda and Rwanda, um, anywhere that there's been conflict that then brings in a lot of reporters and 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 other people like they, they come and they take pictures and, and the locals will say, Oh, they're coming and taking our pictures and then they're 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 going and making money off of us. We don't get to see those pictures or anything like that. So you have to be like I'm not going around like a tourist and taking pictures of them. When I get into the village, you know, sometimes I pull it out for entertainment and, and, and show them themselves where they can, you know, in the iPhone where you can actually see yourself on the screen at that time and their eyes just light up and it's like a it's like a mirror, but it's you know, it's it's on a screen. Wow. And so it's crazy for them. That is so cool, man. What an amazing journey you've been on, man. I mean just I know Loretta Hunt who's sitting over here to our right. Uh, to your right, who yeah. uh, you've written a bunch of books, Loretta, and you, she's writing a book about you right now. I, I, I want to read that book, man, because I uh -huh. think it's really fascinating. But I think a documentary is really what we need to see, too. Like, someone needs to get out of some bad motherfuckers to go with a camera crew to the Congo, too. Yeah, well, we did something for Water 4, and it's, it's on Vimeo, um, but it's called uh, Freedom in the Congo. And I, it's a very... Very well done, seven-minute documentary of kind of the work we were doing. Um, so, yeah, it's called Freedom in the Congo on Vimeo. And the what was so cool was this guy that came to film it, his name's Derek Watson, and he's done stuff for National Geographic and PBS, and he's done, like, full documentaries and, and, and got a woman named Sister Rosemary that was helping uh, girls that were abducted by the LRA and, and made, quote-unquote, wives of them, but really they were just sex slaves. She would help them out. His documentary got her in uh, in Times Time Magazine's top 100 people, but um, but anyways, the, he, he snuck in a, a GoPro drone. Here it is, right here. So it's um, wow, just flying over the forest. Of what the forest looks like. Yeah, yeah man. That's what I thought. You know, living in my American bubble. You know, there's no slaves today. You got rid of that in the 1800s. Slavery in today's age? Why? Why should it exist? Zamani kwanza, 
This is all subtitled for folks that are just listening to this. Freedom in the Congo. Check it out on Vimeo. Their slave masters come up to me and say, what are you here doing with my animals? What are you here doing with my property? I own these people. Yeah, that's them getting paid two bananas. They just need to be given so a few fish, a few bananas, something small, so that they can come back and work the next day, so that they're hungry enough that they have to come back and work the next day. Let's, um, let's leave this for people to watch the full thing so they don't... Yeah. One thing on that that we're going to edit, um, just just to, to, to know, is it says on there, um, it says Bantu mm -hmm. on it. And, and yeah, they are some of the, the, the slave masters there. Um, it's the Bantu and the Pygmies, but really it's the, the Makpala. Um, and it's, it's basically the, the non-Pygmies. And the region that the Pygmies live, so I, I never, we don't want to villainize a certain people group. We, again, we want to work with both sides. And, and we want to be, we want to add to each. We don't want to take away. We don't want to, we don't want to hurt them in the process. Um, but we want to educate them that, hey, there's, we're both equals and how can we do this in the, the best way um, possible. So we're changing that just so that there's no, like, um, nothing, nothing seen like we're trying to, to, to point them out. Because they're the biggest people group in, a, in all of Africa. And they're, they're, most of them live where there aren't even pygmies. But where there are pygmies, most of the, most of the time, the pygmies are being enslaved. Do these guys know these these pygmy folks? Do they know that you uh, fought in the UFC? Do they understand what the UFC is? Um, trying to explain it, they 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 kind of like wonder how can that be a job because they've only seen physical conflict um, whenever there's a, a real dispute, you know. Right. And there's there's not really martial arts there, um, but but they they do kind of wrestle around some and. Um, but it, it, it's gotten me out of out of trouble before um, in the Congo. I had a, a tops card and uh, and I, I just kept it with me on me and I'd, I'd try to show him and, and, and it was me just blasting a guy hitting him in the chin and it was uh, <laughs> anyways um, yeah I, I, they were being real corrupt and everything and I, I showed him it and ended up signing and just giving it to him they let us go instead <laughs> of paying any money yeah. give him a baseball card or an yeah. MMA version of the baseball yeah, well, card what, they were going to try to steal. Uh, well, J. Lua, he's my grandfather. He gave me a uh, a, a pygmy bow and arrow, uh, well, a bunch of arrows and, and a bow. And this this guy was just saying um, that it was illegal for me to have it. That and I'm like, it's a gift. He's like, no, no, no. You came here to come take our artifacts back to your country and make thousands of dollars. And if you're going to go make those thousands of dollars, and you have to give me hundreds of dollars, and I'm like, that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And so he's like trying to pull it out of my hand. I said, what if I give you this? And just gave him the gave him the, the UFC tops card and uh, talked to him and played around with him. And, you know, if you just sometimes when they're asking you to give them something, Matt actually taught it to me, the guy in the video um, from Water 4. He if they if they ask for you to give them something, sometimes you just got to give them anything and they'll, they'll let you go. It can be a bottle of water. It can be um, a passion fruit. It can be a banana. Um, one time it was a, it was a guy said, you got to give me something or I'm not going to let you go. So I just wrapped him up in a big bear hug. <laughs> Afterwards, I said, "There, I gave you a hug," and uh, he was—he was—he was laughing, you know. And and in between us, you know, that he's got—he's got a machine gun, and so we're whoa, we're Jesus hugging and, Christ, yeah. And so we're you bear hug to do with a machine yeah. gun. Well, he wasn't holding on to it and like pointing it at me or anything. They just always have them around him. That's still a bold and so, move. And, and and Matt had done that—that that basically that same thing 
um, in I think Togo, um, where where he he was doing water wells all all throughout there. He's done hundreds there, um, but yeah, it's just sometimes you got to find a way to 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 make them laugh or to make them like you or to 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 try to find a way to to to, to get the job done. Do they speak English when you're communicating with these people? Um, some some of them are. Uh, some of them are, are pretty educated. So it's crazy how. I think it's harder for us in our culture to learn languages because we don't grow up learning several languages at once. But there, they're growing up learning four, five, six languages at one time. And so some of them, yeah, they speak English very fluently. And are they learning this from um, school? Are they learning this from... School or a lot of times the military are learning it from um, their, their jobs, their work. If there's humanitarian organizations that, that are, are speaking English and, and different things like that. Wow. Yeah. What, what is the end game for you here? I mean, you, you, you're obviously improving their lives dramatically by creating these wells and bringing them medicine. But what, what do you eventually hope to do? Well, that's a, that's a big question, but I'll, I'll try to simplify it. I just want them to know that they're loved, um, that, that um, they're not forgotten, um, and that um, this is a lifelong thing for me. There's no way... I mean, it doesn't matter what's going on. I'm going to be going there my entire life. And what I, what I hope is just to add, add to their life. Like for me, whenever I sit back and I say, okay, what does a perfect world look like? Um, and, and how can I try to, to take action to see that, that the good comes into the world instead of the bad, instead of the evil, instead of the, the, the kids dying of, of, of dirty water, you know, what can I do as a person to, to, to see that that is alleviated at least a little bit, even just for one person, if I can do that. And so for me and my, my, my pygmy family, like I don't want to see that, that same kind of suffering them. We've actually seen them set free now and we've seen them uh, get clean water and seen them have food. And, and that's hopefully just the beginning of, of different things that will be a lifelong way to, to sustain them and, and the, the people in that region. D when when you're there and you 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 hang out with these people, especially when they know that you've done you know the UFC and they they understand that you like participate in professional conflict, as it were, do you teach them things? Do you ever like have a class there? I've I've shown a few of them uh, about maybe ten or fifteen of the men one time, just some little little wrestling. I, I was teaching them a, an arm drag. Um, just because I didn't want people falling down and getting hurt or something like that. Right. So teach them an arm drag, a throw by, um, a, a little bit of a double leg, but how to set them down easy. Um, so it was fun. And then they really grasped onto it. Um, and a guy named Baiwanja, Baiwanja just, he loved it. And he would go around and he would be grabbing onto everybody. Arm dragging them. <laughs> yeah, arm dragging them, jumping on their back. You teach them how you to know. take the back? Yeah, yeah, from, from an arm drag or a throw-by, you know, yeah. from a throw-by. Not, not on the ground grappling, but I would, uh, yeah, he would get behind them. And that was just his natural reaction was to be a spider monkey, just jump on their back, uh, Marcelo Garcia style, be right, a backpack right. on them. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. What about striking? Do you teach him any striking? No, I haven't done that, man. I think, I think for me now, it hasn't been a, a big thing showing them martial arts. It's my big passion. I'd love for him to, but... 
it's just kind of hard being in the jungle and the forest. There's trees everywhere. There's stumps everywhere. There's, right. It's hard to, to get a, a nice space to, to gravel. Yeah, I would imagine that would yeah. be, especially for takedowns, right? Yeah, definitely. Fall down and land a log up your ass. Mm -hmm. um, when you are planning, I mean, if you are, have you committed to this plan of fighting again, or is it still something that you have in your head? I haven't, haven't uh, an, like, announced it or formally made a plan with anybody yet, but um, for me, my family, my wife, and, and the team takedown guys know that I'm going to make a real, real, real stab at it. So you're thing, definitely going to do it. I'm going to do it. So when you do that, how much time will you spend here and how much time will you spend there and how much time do you spend here and there right now? Yeah, well, I've been going since 2011 and um, I've taken, you know, month-long trips there until this last one, which was a one-year trip. Um, and if I go back into fighting, it would only allow me probably to go there one, two, or max three times a year. Um, for anywhere from two to four weeks at a time. So I would love to, to, to train hard, to, to fight hard. I'll, I'll never have, I know one thing's for sure, I'll never have more motivation to beat a dude, to go in there, to get my hand raised, not just for me, but, but, but for, well, starting my family with my wife, but also for the family there in Congo, that more is going to be added to, to them and to, uh, to, to alleviate what's going on there. Now, were you released by the UFC, or did you just stop fighting? Like, what, what happened? Yeah, I, I was released, and then I, I fought, and I won three fights, and I stepped away. Um, I was, I, I, I'm sure there was a, an open door to go back. What and, uh, organization did you want, win three fights with? Uh, Ring of Fire. Okay. Um, so you were in Denver, fighting mm -hmm. in Denver. And then, and then I fought in Vegas once for another promotion. Fought a dude that I think was 6-0 and at the time and uh, and stopped him. And then, uh, yeah, for me, though, I know that it would be uh, – it wouldn't be a step right back into that level of the UFC. Right. Not, not right away. I would have to work my way back up to that. Um, but you know what, though, if, if if the right opponent and stuff like that comes along. But, but for me, I, I want to train hard but smart, be strategic about the matchups. Um, I mean – me, I'm, I'm a competitor. Whenever I, I was wrestling, I had Kenny Monday as my high school coach, Olympic gold medalist, Ken, Kendall Cross, Olympic gold medalist. Then I went to the Olympic Training Center. So something I think if you ask Brendan or, or anyone that's trained with me, they'll, they'll say that I'm a competitor and that my heart or, or spirit is a, is a spirit of a fighter. Heart and of Kenny a fighter. Monday's that team takedown now yeah, too, Yeah, that, great. That, that's something that is, is you know, is a light bulb I moment. I was amazed that they let him go at the Black Zillion. So I was like, are you crazy? Yeah. Do you know what, what a wealth of knowledge that guy has when it comes to, I mean, I guess it was a personality conflict or something like that, but man, what a great coach that guy is and a great wrestler. Yeah, For, with me, high school, and then ever since then, and then even now, whenever I stepped away, he fully 100% supported everything and said that uh, he loves what I'm doing. But, but what's so great about Coach Money is he really will invest into people and, and really teach them s slick stuff that you're not going to find from a from a high school or college program. Like this is Olympic level stuff that that's coming from all over the world, and it's the little things that matter. And so he's able to to teach us those things. And he, he's a great man. Yeah, I thought he was a great addition to uh, Team Takedown. I saw him when he was training and working with Johnny Hendricks in the rematch with Robbie Lawler. What's going on right now with Johnny Hendricks? Are you uh, are you training with him? Are you are you there with him in Dallas? I, I've watched him train. I mean, I haven't really stepped in there yet. I think for me right now, I'll, I mean, I'm I'm out of shape. <laughs> I'm out right. of shape, and and I want to come back in. My problem was that I would, I would uh I would come back too soon, and then I, injuries would happen. So right. I'm gonna get my core and all that back before I step in there with those guys. What do you weigh? Right now, two eighty. Two eighty. Yeah, two eighty right now. Wow. 
Yeah, and so I'll have to get back down. I'll probably be around 255, around fight time, 250. Um, that's that's me coming back from from Congo, having no food, coming back and having all the food at my disposal. Barbecue, baby. Yeah, Are you absolutely. living in Dallas? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And my grandpa owns uh, uh, several barbecue restaurants. Oh, how dare you? <laughs> Texas barbecue is something special, man. Yeah. Wow. That's uh, You're living an incredible life, man. You know, I think it'd be really fascinating if you did come back and what a story that would be and how, I mean, it would generate an incredible amount of press and an incredible amount of attention towards what you're trying to do in the Congo. Well, that that's, um, man, that's humbling to hear because, I mean, I, I respect your opinion so much of being in the fight game for so long. Um, I, I want to be realistic about it and say, like, right now I'm, I'm not looking at the the world champion level, you know, I'm not aiming at that right now, but but that could be a future goal once I get back into it, get get in shape, um, and really start 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 just knocking some dudes down. Do you know how crazy it would be if you got to to the point where you're fighting for the title? Do you know how fucking <laughs> bananas that would be? That would be nuts. Well, I mean, you want to talk about the most incredible PR campaign ever? I mean, you want to talk about some someone that you could really get behind and root for? Jesus Christ, you'd have the whole world rooting for you. <sighs> It's a goddamn Rocky movie. <laughs> I'm getting goosebumps. Wow. That would be crazy, man. If yeah. You could, if you could really get into, like, top shape. Yeah, that's you know? the thing. I, so I, I would is, love that. Is, that would be the perfect world. That's the thing. Like, I, I feel like... I feel like in my heart, that's, that's one of my deepest desires is to fight and contend for the highest possible good in every circumstance. Like, it doesn't matter if it's there or, or, or here Whatever it is, whenever I'm meeting somebody, like like, what can I do to, to to add to the lives of another? And if I can do that through fighting, something that I'm very passionate about, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, it's humbling. I, that, that goes through my mind. I try to be realistic. Try to, but but at the same time, um, I, I'm a big dreamer, and I think that if if I could do, I mean, that would be obviously the the the, the cat's pajamas. If I could if I could be the champ and, and cat's pajamas. The cat's pajamas. Could you imagine if you won the title? I mean, that would be un unbelievable. Obviously, that's going to take some Absolutely. superhuman dedication yeah. to, to to hit that level. You don't get to that level without it. No. So, um, but yeah, that that's that's what's so motivating about me getting back into it is I see a huge opportunity to 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 fulfill that first promise I gave him. Man, I was standing at the grave of Andy Bo. And I'd held him in my hands, and I'd had his blood on me, and I'd, I'd, I'd buried him, and uh, and it was so tough, so hard. And then one of the chiefs came to me and said, "Nobody knows about what's happening to us. Nobody knows about the suffering." And he said, "I know you can't promise us water, land, any of that stuff, but can you, can you, can you tell people? Can you, can you, can you at least, you know, give us a voice?" And so that's whenever I, I made that promise, and and so me going back into fighting would be extremely emotional for me to get back into it to get back in shape to go back in there to to, to knock some dudes out like they're, they're gonna have to they're gonna have to put me away um really like really put me away for me not to 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 do everything in my power to win that fight well you've always had a ridiculous chin yeah. that was like one of your biggest assets you, you take a tremendous shot has that always been the case i they, they People would always joke saying I have some. Get that big fucking head. Viking head, dude. <laughs> yeah, well, even at heavyweight, my head's normally like twice the size of everyone else. <laughs> so it's an easy target, but but it's but it but it takes a beating. Was it uh, tough watching a fellow Viking go down this weekend? When Man, was, uh, what was so tough was like him afterwards. Like even yeah. with with Anthony saying that you know he's yeah. crying, I can't even celebrate. 
That was tough. Well, he's so loved there, man. I mean, yeah. it's uh, the, he literally is carrying the entire country on his back there. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of pressure involved in that, a tremendous amount of love, too. They they fucking love Gustafson. I mean, they were cheering for him after he lost. No, but it was like, in America, I, I mean, I don't want to shit on America, but, man, when people lose in America, everybody fucking clears out of the arena right away. Yeah. You know, and nobody cleared out after he lost. They stuck around and they wait. I mean, you're talking about an arena filled with 26,000 people, too. Wow. It's a long fucking commute. It's zero degrees outside. It's cold as fuck. And they all stuck around. They were they were chanting out his name after he lost. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. I knew that it was it was a deafening silence when he lost. Yeah, I could have started crying if I started thinking about it. I, I could have started crying then, you know, watching mm -hmm. him. It was pretty intense. But I was so blown away by Rumble, too. It was like, it was like this, yeah, it was like this combination of, I mean, that's often how it is when you watch fights. It's like there's a combination of moments. Like, like I'm a big fan of John Jones, but I'm also a big fan of Daniel Cormier. I, I love Daniel. Yeah. I love both those guys as human beings yeah. as well as as fighters. So after John Jones trounced Daniel, like part of me was like, man, I feel sorry for Daniel. Mm -hmm. But other part of me was like, God damn, Dan John Jones is a bad motherfucker. You yeah. know? It's like there's this weird sort of, you know, you 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 revel in the moment for the guy who won. I mean, also, you got to look at like a guy like Gustafsson and go, wow, yeah. that's, that's hard hard for him. That's got to be hard. It's really cool about hearing that about the Swedish fans, though. I mean, that's, that's a reason why I loved uh, Pride, was mm -hmm. that the fans yes. were so educated. And they would sit there, you know, quiet and polite, and, and, uh, and then whenever they would appreciate even the moves of grappling, mm -hmm. you know, passing... Passing full guard, half guard, and they would they would they would clap. You know, that's yeah. that's something that here you well, hear. we're starting to see that more now. Yeah, you know, and people understand positions. Like uh, someone will move to a mount, you'll hear like a big cheer mm -hmm. like throughout the audience, where people understand. But yeah, Japan, it's a very very different environment. There's it's incredibly quiet while the fights are going on. Yeah, and then there's a cheer Strange. when when there's some sort of a transition or someone does something good. Yeah, and they also. They they don't put as much of an emphasis on winning as they do as much as Fine. you fought your hardest. Yeah, and there's always going to be people that beat you. Like you could you could train your hardest, and you run into somebody who's just far better than you, and there's just nothing you can do about it. That guy's always going to beat you. You know, there's certain guys like like perfect example, Stefan Bonner when he fought Anderson Silva. Mm. You fight your hardest, man. You're mm. not going to beat Anderson Silva. You know, you just you just he's better. He's just better. You know, he's just be he trains just as hard. He's probably just as smart, if not smarter. Knows way more. Can move way better. No but in Japan, in Japan, when a guy would fight like that, they would still appreciate your warriors. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. It's like that samurai kind mm -hmm. of spirit, you know. And um, America, we just like winners. Yeah, we like winners. When you lose, people will get on your fucking Facebook page. They'll get on your Twitter page. I mean, I've read some. You know, I don't want to call them fans. Just douchebags that yeah. torment people after they lose and I've read some of the tweets and it's just fucking appalling yeah. it's appalling that these anonymous shitheads who go on these guys pages after they've spent you know eight weeks plus camps every day preparing for this moment and then they get they get trounced and then people just go off on them and they make memes about them and they, yeah. they mock them and you know, it's that's a very unfortunate aspect of our culture mm -hmm. that that they put so much emphasis on on the winner only. But it's on the other hand, it's like 
that cruelty and that intense pressure, it's also why the baddest motherfuckers come out of that culture. It's like people that can withstand that. And, you know, I mean, it's, there's a, a yin and a yang, and the yin is harder and the yang is harder. Mm-hmm. It's, it's weird. You know, there's, there, I don't think it's the right way to be. I certainly don't think there's enough respect paid to the people that lose in, in MMA in America. I think I appreciate the Japanese version of it better. I don't like win bonuses either. I mean, uh, I know the UFC probably doesn't like to hear this, but I think I think a guy should be paid a certain amount to fight, and I know the guys are going to fight their fucking hardest. I mean, they're not they're not fighting harder because they get a win bonus. They're trying to survive. I mean, you could say that. I mean, you could explain that more than anybody, but you're trying to win. You know, you're a win bonus. Like the fact that you can make fifty percent more if you win than you do if you lose. Like it's kind of it's it is kind of crazy. Kinda, yeah, it's kind of crazy because once you get to a certain level, at least. Yes. You know, once you get to a certain level, man, I don't think it it does make you fight harder. It, afterwards, it sucks more. Yeah, it sucks more because now you can't you can't pay the bills that you were hoping to and things like that. Well, Tyron um, Woodley had a really good um, statement recently. We was talking about how people are always saying, uh, you know, don't leave it in the hands of the judges. He's like, do you fucking think we're trying to leave it in the hands of the judges? <laughs> yeah. You know, they're fighting the best guys in the goddamn world. Yeah. And there's, it's like you do what you can do. And if you do more than that, like if you do something stupid or you do something illogical or you do something reckless, you can get knocked the fuck out. I mean, yeah. that that's you have to f- i'm a big fan of guys fighting intelligently yeah. you know and when when people fight intelligently sometimes it's not the most entertaining fight but that is the fight that you have to f- that's the way you have to perform in order to to use your skills to the best of your ability you know and people don't understand that and this idea that like they're trying to leave it in the hands of the judges i mean occasionally you'll see a guy fight safe yeah you know you see a guy the, that goofy fight um where the goofy ending Nate Corey versus who was it where he's walking oh yeah yeah walking yeah. him down Caleb like that Starnes. yeah I'm sure they wouldn't want to pay yeah. him the same amount I'm sure they were right. happy that they paid him 50 percent yes so that's but, that's the worst example of all time yeah and I don't know what was wrong with Caleb Starnes in that fight but yeah that's a I mean those memes they <laughs> exist for, that'll haunt that dude forever yeah you know yeah without a doubt but I think yeah once you get to a certain level and there and, and if you're a real competitor that does have the eye on the top prize then, then you're gonna fight your heart out every single time. I'm glad Woodley said that. That's a very yeah, important point. That's I don't. I like hadn't that. heard that. That's great. Yeah, I don't like that. Leave it. Don't leave it in the hands of the judges. You know. Oh, come on. You know, it's just, it's. And then the the judge thing too is a real issue. Like in Boston, there was a few retarded decisions where people just went, what? And people just turned around and were looking at each other. I love watching a decision when a decision's bad. I always turn towards the crowd because I, I like watching people look at each other like, what the <laughs> fuck? Because you'll see like head turns where people like turn to their, their friends like, yeah. what the fuck just happened? How did that happen? Yeah. yeah, there's some bad fucking judging, man. There's some really, really bad judging. And it didn't help that it was in Boston where the white guys were getting the good judges the yeah. good call you know because boston where i'm from is not exactly known for uh being <laughs> the least racist yeah. place on the planet mm. you know yeah i, I don't want to sound sexist at all but one of my fights on the, too late uh, oops <laughs> <laughs> whatever you say yeah i don't want to sorry on on the ultimate fighter when i fought uh big country um two of the three judges we had were were women and one had gray hair and the other had her two kids that were running around 
running around at, at the the ultimate fighter like Jim. And and so she was worried about her kids while we were warming up for the fight. And then and then I'm not saying that affected the decision. Um it could have gone a third round. Uh I definitely believe that, but but at the same time like it was just nuts to me that I'm like, "Whoa, how are these the judges in Vegas?" Not that I mean, but I think that judges should at least have had to have trained or fought before or really had to have gone through some some deep um, training to become a judge. Yeah, there's no way you understand it any other way. I don't, I don't, especially the ground game. Yeah. You know, there's a judge, I don't want to say his name, but he told me that he was watching a fight once and there was a woman who was also judging and the guy was going for a Kimura and the, the woman said, what's he doing? Oh my gosh. And she said to him, what's see? he doing? Like, what's he doing? Yeah. Like, God damn. Yeah. And like, see, see, for my fight, it was nuts because I'm like, this woman, I don't know that she's ever, I mean, maybe she had really watched MMA and studied it, but She's got gray hair. It's not normally into to her, you know, element, and then her time zone or whatever. But uh, but then also the other lady that brought her kids there. I'm like, do they know what these moves are that we're doing? Like, do no. they know the names of them? Do they know the setups? Do they no. know the de defenses? Do they know what's going on during the fight while that while that human chess match is going on? Do they know what the fighters are thinking, doing, how how they're making it happen? And if they don't, they shouldn't be judging. There's no way they should be judging. I mean, there's so many fans of MMA, and I've said this many times. I've even said this on broadcast. There's so many incredibly knowledgeable fans of MMA yeah. that if they held open casting calls for new judges, you would get incredibly qualified people who have either trained their whole lives or competed multiple times that w enjoy the sport, love the sport. Like you, if you decided to never, like Ricardo Almeida, he's a judge in, in New Jersey. Really? That's yeah. great. I didn't know that. Yeah, he judges in New Jersey. See, I think that's a guy I would in, trust. Yeah, fucking mm -hmm. without a doubt. Or, or even if it was a girl, if it was one of the women that had fought for, before, for trained sure. before, you for know, sure. like a, a Rose or a Rhonda or someone like that, like I could trust their judgment. Yeah, and I think you should be like, God, you got to have some grappling experience because yeah. grappling seems to be the most confusing. Seem like if someone like is hitting the other guy more and the other guy gets stunned It's kind of obvious. Oh, that guy's winning the fight But if you're watching like say uh, a guy who's like really slick on the ground like uh, You know, you know fill in the blank some 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 guy who's got a, a nasty guard and he's putting this guy in all sorts of bad positions But the other guys on top like sometimes, you know people uh, like uh, Charles Oliveira, perfect mm -hmm. example. He fought Jeremy Stevens. I mean, he was catching Jeremy Stevens and all kinds of shit. But Jeremy's a beast, and he kept pulling out of it. But in, for my money, he he's winning. winning the exchanges. I mean, he he had him like threatened with arm bars. He's threatening with all this sort of shit off of his back. If you don't know what the fuck is going on, and you're watching that. I think the guy on top's winning. Exactly. You might be inclined to think that, and I think with a person who's trained you 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 understand it way better and i just think it's unfair yeah. like just deeply 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 unfair for a professional fighter who's taken eight weeks out of his life and and just every morning got up sore and did his road work and you know hitting the pads and sparring and doing constant drills and strength yeah. and conditioning you're jumping yeah. over hurdles you're doing all this fucking shit you want to puke blood you're throwing up after and then some a-hole who doesn't know shit about what they're talking about gives the other person they just they just go left or right you know oh pick this guy yeah and I it's mean, a lot more than that eight weeks of training too that sure. all goes into it all of the stuff that ever came before it and all your heart all your soul mm -hmm. all that and then what is I, I was gonna ask what is even the process to become a judge because Good I don't question. even know what that is 
Well, it depends on the the athletic commission. Okay. I mean, the 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 local athletic commissions. Uh, there's a lot of local athletic commissions where they do a better job than the bigger athletic commissions, really, wow. because the people that are involved are dedicated mixed martial artists. Like yeah. in in Boston, I know Joe Esposito was uh, part of uh, the co the commission, and Joe Esposito was my first karate instructor. I mean, he's a guy who's a lifelong martial artist, so he is a very credible source of martial arts knowledge. I mean, he's yeah. a guy who's been involved his whole life. Whereas You've got people in Nevada that came from boxing. They were boxing judges, and then someone said, uh, you know, we need judges for MMA. You know, we'll just take, take these boxing people, and, you know, we'll use them to judge MMA fights. And it's fucking crazy. I mean, it's really crazy. Well, you know, you've got people that don't understand how much a leg kick hurts. Yeah. And they don't think that that's anything. You know, you've got people that they, they have no idea what's going on when you're watching infighting up against a cage. They have no idea, you know, who's getting the better of those exchanges. They just don't know. They just see bodies moving, mm -hmm. you know, and they just, they don't, you know, see guys reversing positions back and forth and they really don't understand what's happening. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a real shame because the sport is growing in such in, in such a huge way. I mean, it's it's exploding all over the world in leaps and bounds. But then you're hampered by these bad judge calls, you know. Yeah, it's terrible. I know that it's robbed a lot of people of of mm -hmm. not just um, you know their their passion, their hopes to win the fight, but even that fifty percent win bonus. Yeah, you know? that's disgusting. I mean, yeah, well, so they're actually taking money out of people's pockets that should have should have won the fight. If you decide, and you have decided, I guess, to yeah. go and do this, what's your timetable? How much time are you going to spend training before you get in there? I think I think I need at least um, maybe before my first fight, maybe around six months um, of actually once I'm in shape, then training, um, at which I'll, I'll be getting in shape while I'm training. But but actually before I start taking some of the, the bigger, tougher fights, maybe it's maybe it's a year, maybe it's 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 longer than that. It's not something that I'm going to do. The next month or two months or three months, it's, right. it's got to be a, a process of really getting my lungs back, getting my core, you know, um, tightened up so it prevents injuries, getting the timing back of the striking, you know, and, and timing back of even the transitions on the ground, that chain wrestling or, or, or just flowing and grappling. So are you starting that process right now? Mm -hmm. So you've already, like, tightened up your diet and started to train harder and started you just slowly ramping it up begun begun to one, one thing that I'm, I'm getting done before I really maybe start sparring before I start um, yeah before I start sparring things like that is I'm, I'm getting my knee checked checked I got a MRI done and so a doctor says it could be I mean an MRI like scope can be three days down but I, I might get something scoped either before or after my my first fight back Three days down. What do you mean? Someone's, someone's, well, even Loretta's husband was down for, for only three days after getting his meniscus scoped. Three oh, days. Listen, I've had my meniscus yeah. scoped a couple times. This shit's yeah. more than oh, three I know, days. I, I know it could be two <laughs> weeks, three weeks, six weeks. Yeah. It can be all that. Well, you want to make sure that but, you don't. There's a lot of guys that have had knee operations and then got in too soon oh, and yeah. done more damage. Yeah. You know, that's brutal. You're, you're dealing with pain and inflammation. They're cutting away soft tissue. It's not nearly as big a deal as like right. ligaments, but. It's so important with knee injuries, especially, to do the rehab. Just right. do do the full rehab. You know, you'll listen. To, I mean, I'm sure if you get it done, you'll get it done at a reputable place, yeah. and you'll talk to a really good doctor. Right now, it's the Denver Broncos knee doc that perfect, I'm talking to. Perfect. Yeah, he's what's, a great guy. What's their prognosis as far as how long? He first first MRI we sent his office. Um, we think lost, but I sent another one out, and they he's, lost he, it. Yeah, he well, it got lost in the mail or something, but we we sent it, and uh, the second one he's looking at though, he, I went in for an exam. He, he started 
moving my knee around. He said it feels like there's something with my meniscus, and whenever I move it around, it cracks a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know that it's going to be something that, that keeps me out from, from the first fight. Maybe it's something I do right after. Um, but but I think it would be good probably to get it done before. Get it then, done before. Yeah, get it done before so I can train right. That's I what can... fucked Kane up in the rematch with, or the fight with Verdum, his right. meniscus. He blew his meniscus out earlier and then, you know, sort of rest and rehabbed and then tried to go back again without getting the operation oh, and wow. then wound up having to get an operation. Yeah. And it's I the think... same knee injury that he had when the first fight with Junior Dos Santos. Right. For me, before I want to actually hard spar, I know it, it might sound – kind of goofy to, to some but I think it, there's there's truth to it I, my my wife was a swimmer in high school and so getting into swimming something that's low impact but also that's going to be be great on my lungs cardio you don't even notice that you're sweating you know yeah. um, so swimming we would do that at the Olympic Training Center we'd play underwater hockey and 12 foot deep we'd go down and just um, have teams and have to score a goal and uh, swimming's not goofy at all yeah swimming, swimming is brutal and, and, and yoga is what uh, i'm gonna get into hard just to get me back my body back in in shape in a way that that my core starts to catch up and develop before i go in there and get put in these um funky position sparring or, or picking a guy up and uh, that's been one of my problems sometimes i'm slamming a guy or something and that's when i get hurt because i came back from a back injury and then i slam him and then i re-hurt that right back right, injury right. and i should have should have rehabbed it better should have uh, should have taken the time to really build my core back up. Mm. Um, so so that's going to be not my focus. I'm going to be doing everything else, but but that's going to be a, a priority of mine at the beginning is, is swimming and, and yoga. Well, listen, dude, we're behind you 100. percent And uh, your website, let's let's put it out there one more time. Fight for the for, fight for the forgotten dot org dot com dot com. Yeah, okay. and then and then water four dot org. So water four dot org. Fight for the forgotten dot com. And there's a donate button on there. So please. Uh, whatever you can do, folks, uh, donate. This is a beautiful cause. I think what you're doing is awesome. It's so inspirational. And uh, you're just an awesome guy, man. Just happy to give you a platform to let people know what you're doing. Yeah, well, I can't thank you enough for, for what you've done for, for even – I mean, I, I know you don't want to even, even want props, but whenever you did the, the Bitcoin and then whatever came in, you matched it. I mean, that, that funded a well plus plus more. Let's fund um, some more wells, baby. Let's we do it. I'll be more than That'd happy. That'd be awesome, man. Thank you so You're much. You're an awesome guy. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Justin the Viking on Twitter. Uh, holler at him. Go tweet him and uh, go to the website and uh, and donate whatever you can. This is a, a real, legit, awesome humanitarian cause and you're an awesome guy. Thank you, Justin. Thank you so much. All right, fuckers, we'll be back in a little bit with uh, Eddie Huang. Uh, He's got a new CBS sitcom, and uh, we'll be right back with him at 3 o'clock, which is about 25 minutes. See you.